Introduction Of all the many things humans rely on plants for, sustenance, beauty, medicine, fragrance, flavor, fiber, surely the most curious is our use of them to change consciousness, to stimulate or calm, to fiddle with or completely alter the qualities of our mental experience. Like most people, I use a couple of plants this way on a daily basis. Every morning without fail, I begin my day by preparing a hot water infusion of one of two plants that I depend on, and dependent I am, to clear the mental fog, sharpen my focus, and prepare myself for the day ahead. We don't usually think of caffeine as a drug or our daily use of it as an addiction, but that is only because coffee and tea are legal and our dependence on them is socially acceptable. So then, what exactly is a drug? And why is making tea from the leaves of Camellia sinensis uncontroversial, while doing the same thing with the seed heads of a Papaver somniferum is, as I discovered to my peril, a federal crime? All who try to construct a sturdy definition of drugs eventually run aground. Is chicken soup a drug? What about sugar? Artificial sweeteners? Chamomile tea? How about a placebo? If we define a drug simply as a substance we ingest that changes us in some way, whether in body or in mind or both, then all those substances surely qualify. But shouldn't we be able to distinguish foods from drugs? Faced with that very dilemma, the Food and Drug Administration punted, offering a circular definition of drugs as, quote, articles other than food, unquote, that are recognized in the pharmacopoeia that is, as drugs by the FDA. Not much help there. Things become only slightly clearer when the modifier illicit is added. An illicit drug is whatever a government decides it is. It can be no accident that these are almost exclusively the ones with the power to change consciousness. Or perhaps I should say, with the power to change consciousness in ways that run counter to the smooth operations of society and the interests of the powers that be. As an example, coffee and tea, which have amply demonstrated their value to capitalism in many ways, not least of all by making us more efficient workers, are in no danger of prohibition, while psychedelics, which are no more toxic than caffeine and considerably less addictive, have been regarded, at least in the West since the mid-1960s, as a threat to social norms and institutions. But even these classifications are not as fixed or as sturdy as you may think. At various times, both in the Arab world and in Europe, authorities have outlawed coffee because they regarded the people who gathered to drink it as politically threatening. Today, psychedelics seem to be undergoing a change of identity. Since researchers have demonstrated that psilocybin can be useful in treating mental health, some psychedelics will probably soon become FDA-approved medicines that is, recognized as more helpful than threatening to the functioning of society. This happens to be precisely how indigenous peoples have always regarded these substances. In many indigenous communities, the ceremonial use of peyote, a psychedelic, reinforces social norms by bringing people together to help heal the traumas of colonialism and dispossession. The government recognizes the First Amendment right of Native Americans to ingest peyote as part of the free exercise of their religion, but under no circumstances do the rest of us enjoy that right, even if we use peyote in a similar way. 
So here is a case where it is the identity of the user rather than the drug that changes its legal status. Nothing about drugs is straightforward. But it's not quite true that our plant taboos are entirely arbitrary. As these examples suggest, societies condone the mind-changing drugs that help uphold society's rule and ban the ones that are seen to undermine it. That's why in a society's choice of psychoactive substances, we can read a great deal about both its fears and its desires. Ever since I took up gardening as a teenager and attempted to grow cannabis, I have been fascinated by our attraction to these powerful plants, as well as by the equally powerful taboos and fraught feelings with which we surround them. I've come to appreciate that when we take these plants into our bodies and let them change our minds, we are engaging with nature in one of the most profound ways possible. There is scarcely a culture on earth that hasn't discovered in its environment at least one such plant or fungus, and in most cases a whole suite of them, that alters consciousness in one of a variety of ways. Through what was surely a long and perilous trial and error, humans have identified plants that lift the burden of physical pain, render us more alert or capable of uncommon feats, make us more sociable, elicit feelings of awe or ecstasy, nourish our imagination, transcend space and time, occasion dreams and visions and mystical experiences, and bring us into the presence of our ancestors or gods. Evidently, normal, everyday consciousness is not enough for us humans. We seek to vary, intensify, and sometimes transcend it. And we have identified a whole collection of molecules in nature that allow us to do that. This Is Your Mind on Plants is a personal inquiry into three of those molecules and the remarkable plants that produce them. The morphine in the opium poppy, the caffeine in coffee and tea, and the mescaline produced by the peyote and San Pedro cactus. The second of these molecules is legal everywhere today. The first is illegal in most places, unless it has been refined by a pharmaceutical company and prescribed by a physician. And the third is illegal in the United States unless you are a member of a Native American tribe. Each represents one of the three broad categories of psychoactive compounds, the downer, opium, the upper, caffeine, and what I think of as the outer, mescaline. Or, to put it a bit more scientifically, I profile here a sedative, a stimulant, and a hallucinogen. Taken together, these three plant drugs cover much of the spectrum of the human experience of psychoactive substances, from the everyday use of caffeine, the most popular psychoactive drug on the planet, to the ceremonial use of mescaline by indigenous peoples, to the age-old use of opiates to relieve pain. That particular chapter is set during the drug war, at a topsy-turvy moment when the government was paying more attention to a bunch of gardeners growing poppies in order to brew a mild narcotic tea than it did to a pharmaceutical company that was knowingly addicting millions of Americans to its FDA-approved opiate, OxyContin. I was one of those gardeners. I tell each of these stories from multiple perspectives and through a variety of lenses, historical, anthropological, biochemical, botanical, and personal. In each case, I have some skin in the game, or, or perhaps I should say brain cells, since I don't know how to write about how it feels and what it means to change consciousness without conducting some self-experimentation. 
Though in the case of caffeine, self-experimentation meant abstaining from it rather than partaking, which proved much harder to do. One of these chapters consists of an essay I wrote 25 years ago when the drug war was raging, and it bears the scars of that period of fear and paranoia. But the other stories have been inflected by the fading of that war, the end of which now appears in sight. In the 2020 election, Oregonians voted to decriminalize the possession of all drugs and specifically to legalize therapy using psilocybin. A ballot measure passed in Washington, D.C. calls for the decriminalization of, quote, entheogenic plants and fungi, end quote. Entheogen is from the Greek for manifesting the god or divine within. It's an alternative term for psychedelics coined in 1979 by a group of religious scholars hoping to remove the counterculture taint from this class of drugs and underscore the spiritual use to which they have been put for thousands of years. In the same election, New Jersey, along with four traditionally red states, Arizona, Mississippi, Montana, South Dakota, voted to liberalize marijuana laws, bringing the number of states that have legalized some form of marijuana use to 36. My wager in writing This Is Your Mind on Plants is that the decline of the drug war, with its brutally simplistic narratives about, quote, your brain on drugs, end quote, has opened a space in which we can tell some other, much more interesting stories about our ancient relationship with the mind-altering plants and fungi with which nature has blessed us. I use the word blessed in full awareness of the human tragedies that can accompany the use of drugs. Much better than we do, the Greeks understood the two-faced nature of drugs, an understanding reflected in the ambiguity of their term for them, pharmacon. A pharmacon can either be a medicine or a poison. It all depends on use, dose, intention, and set and setting. The word has a third meaning as well, one often relied on during the drug war. A pharmacon is also a scapegoat, something for a group to blame its problems on. Drug abuse is certainly real, but it is less a matter of breaking the law than of falling into an unhealthy relationship with a substance, whether licit or illicit, one in which the ally or medicine has become an enemy. The same opiates that killed some 50,000 Americans by overdose in 2019 also make surgery endurable and ease the passage out of this life. Surely that qualifies as a blessing. The stories I tell here put this trio of psychoactive plant chemicals into the context of our larger relationship to nature. One of the innumerable threads connecting us to the natural world is that which links plant chemistries to human consciousness. And since this is a relationship, we need to account for the plant's points of view as well as our own. How amazing is it that so many kinds of plants have hit upon the precise recipes for molecules that fit snugly into receptors in human brains? And that by doing so, these molecules can short-circuit our experience of pain or rouse us or obliterate the sense of being a separate self. You have to wonder, what's in it for the plants to devise and manufacture molecules that can pass for human neurotransmitters and affect us in such profound ways? Most of the molecules that plants produce that change animal minds start out as tools for defense— 
Alkaloids like morphine, caffeine, and mescaline are bitter-tasting toxins meant to discourage animals from eating the plants that make them and, should the animal persist, to poison it. But plants are clever, and over the course of evolution, they've learned that simply killing a pest outright is not necessarily the smartest strategy. Since a lethal pesticide would quickly select for resistant members of the pest population, rendering it ineffective, plants have evolved subtler and more devious strategies. Chemicals that instead mess with the minds of animals, confusing or disorienting them, or ruining their appetite. Something that caffeine, mescaline, and morphine all reliably do. But while most of the psychoactive molecules plants have developed started out as poisons, they sometimes evolved into the opposite, attractants. Scientists recently discovered a handful of species that produce caffeine in their nectar, which is the last place you would expect a plant to serve up a poisonous beverage. These plants have discovered that they can attract pollinators by offering them a small shot of caffeine. Even better, that caffeine has been shown to sharpen the memories of bees, making them more faithful, efficient, and hardworking pollinators. Pretty much what caffeine does for us. Once humans discovered what caffeine and morphine and mescaline could do for them, the plants that produced the greatest amounts of these chemicals were the ones that prospered in the sunshine of our attention. We disseminated their genes around the world, vastly expanding their habitat and providing for their every need. By now, our fates and the fates of these plants are complexly intertwined. What began as war has evolved into marriage. Why do humans go to such lengths to change our minds? And then why do we fence that universal desire with laws and customs, taboos and anxieties? These questions have occupied me since I began writing about our engagement with the natural world more than 30 years ago. When you compare this desire to the other needs we turn to nature to gratify for food, clothing, shelter, beauty, and so on, the drive to alter consciousness wouldn't seem to contribute nearly as much, if anything, to our success or survival. In fact, the desire to change consciousness may be seen as maladaptive since altered states can put us at risk for accidents or make us more vulnerable to attack. Also, many of these plant chemicals are toxic. Others, like morphine, are highly addictive. But if our species' desire to change consciousness is universal, a human given, then doing so should offer benefits to make up for the risks, or natural selection would long ago have weeded out the drug takers. Take, for example, morphine's value as a painkiller, which has made it one of the most important drugs in the pharmacopoeia going back thousands of years. Plants that change consciousness answer to other human needs as well. We shouldn't underestimate the value to people trapped in monotonous lives of a substance that can relieve boredom and entertain by sponsoring novel sensations and thoughts in the mind. Some drugs can expand the contours of a world constrained by circumstance, as I discovered during the pandemic. Drugs that enhance sociability not only gratify us, but presumably result in more offspring. Stimulants like caffeine improve concentration, making us better able to learn and work and think in rational, linear ways. Human consciousness is always at risk of getting stuck sending the mind around and around in loops of rumination. 
Mushroom chemicals like psilocybin can nudge us out of those grooves, loosening stuck brains and making possible new patterns of thought. Psychedelic drugs can also benefit us, and occasionally our culture, by stimulating the imagination and nourishing creativity in the individuals who take them. This is not to suggest that all the ideas that occur to the altered mind are any good. Most of them aren't. But every now and then, a tripping brain will hit upon a novel idea, a solution to a problem, or a new way of looking at things that will benefit the group and possibly change the course of history. The case can be made that the introduction of caffeine to Europe in the 17th century fostered a new, more rational, and sober way of thinking that helped give rise to the Age of Reason and the Enlightenment. It's useful to think of these psychoactive molecules as mutagens, but mutagens operating in the realm of human culture rather than in biology. In the same way that exposure to a disruptive force like radiation can mutate genes, introducing variation and throwing off new traits that every so often prove adaptive for the species, psychoactive drugs, operating on the minds of individuals, occasionally contribute useful new memes to the evolution of culture. Conceptual breakthroughs, fresh metaphors, novel theories. Not always, not even often, but every now and then, the encounter of a mind and a plant molecule changes things. If the human imagination has a natural history, as it must, can there be any doubt that plant chemistries have helped to inform it? Psychedelic compounds can promote experiences of awe and mystical connection that nurture the spiritual impulse of human beings, indeed, that may have given rise to it in the first place, according to some religious scholars. The notion of a beyond, of a hidden dimension of reality, or of an afterlife, these too may be memes introduced to human culture by visions that psychoactive molecules inspired in human minds. Drugs are not the only way to occasion the sort of mystical experience at the core of many religious traditions. Meditation, fasting, and solitude can achieve similar results, but drugs are a proven tool for making it happen. The spiritual or ceremonial use of plant drugs can also help knit people together, fostering a stronger sense of social connection accompanied by a diminished sense of self. We have only just begun to understand how the human involvement with psychoactive plants has shaped our history. It probably shouldn't surprise us that plants of such power and possibility are surrounded by equally powerful emotions, laws, rituals, and taboos. These reflect the understanding that changing minds can be disruptive to both individuals and societies, and that when such powerful tools are placed in the hands of fallible human beings, things can go very wrong. We have much to learn from traditional indigenous cultures that have made long use of psychedelics like mescaline or ayahuasca. As a rule, the substances are never used casually, but always with intention, surrounded by ritual, and under the watchful eye of experienced elders. These people recognize that these plants can unleash Dionysian energies that can get out of control if not managed with care. But the blunt instrument of a drug war has kept us from reckoning with these ambiguities and the important questions about our nature that they raise. 
The drug war's simplistic account of what drugs do and are, as well as its insistence on lumping them all together under a single meaningless rubric, has for too long prevented us from thinking clearly about the meaning and potential of these very different substances. The legal status of this or that molecule is one of the least interesting things about it. Much like a food, a psychoactive drug is not a thing. Without a human brain, it is inert, so much as it is a relationship. It takes both a molecule and a mind to make anything happen. The premise of this book is that these three relationships hold up mirrors to our deepest human needs and aspirations, the operations of our minds, and our entanglement with the natural world. Opium. Prologue. The narrative that follows this prologue is something of a period piece, a dispatch from the war on drugs near its peak, circa 1996-97, that itself became a minor casualty of that war. The piece originally appeared in the April 1997 issue of Harper's Magazine, but not in its entirety. After consulting with several lawyers, I decided there were four or five crucial pages of the narrative that I couldn't publish without risking arrest, as well as the forfeiture of our house and garden, the wrecking of our life, basically. Twenty-four years later, those pages, which had gone missing after I hid them away, have been restored and appear here for the first time. The story began as something of a lark and ended in anxiety, paranoia, and self-censorship. At the time, my wife and I and our four-year-old son were living in rural Connecticut, and I was writing personal essays about the goings-on in my garden. As a gardener, I'd become fascinated by the symbiotic relationship our species has struck up with certain plants, using them to gratify our desires for everything from nourishment to beauty to a change of consciousness. Early in 1996, my editor at Harper's Magazine, Paul Tuff, sent me an underground press book called Opium for the Masses that had crossed his desk, suggesting there might be a column in it for me. I was immediately intrigued by the idea that I could grow opium and produce this most ancient of psychoactive drugs in my garden from easily obtainable seeds. I decided to give it a try, just to see what would happen. What happened turned out to be a living nightmare, as I found myself ensnared in a quiet but determined federal campaign to stamp out knowledge of an easy-to-produce homegrown narcotic before it became a fad. Read today, in what we can hope are the waning days of the drug war, the piece feels overwrought in places, but it's important to understand the context in which it was written. Under President Clinton, the government was prosecuting the war on drugs with a vehemence never before seen in America. The year I planted my poppies, more than a million Americans were arrested for drug crimes. The penalties for many of those crimes had become draconian under Clinton's 1994 crime bill, which introduced new three-strikes sentencing provisions and led to mandatory minimum sentences for many nonviolent drug offenses. By the mid-1990s, a series of Supreme Court decisions in drug cases had handed the government a raft of new powers that have significantly eroded our civil liberties. The government also won new powers to confiscate property, houses, cars, land, involved in drug crimes, even when no individual has been convicted or even charged. 
Were these erosions of our liberties a casualty of the drug war or its objective? It's a fair question. President Clinton didn't start the drug war. That distinction belongs to Richard Nixon, who we now know viewed drug enforcement not as a matter of public health or safety, but as a political tool to wield against his enemies. In an April 2016 article in Harper's Magazine, Legalize It All, Dan Baum recounted an interview that he conducted with John Ehrlichman in 1994, two years before my misadventures in the garden. Ehrlichman, you will recall, was President Nixon's domestic policy advisor. He served time in federal prison for his role in Watergate. Baum came to talk to Ehrlichman about the drug war, of which he was a key architect. You want to know what this was really all about, Ehrlichman began, startling the journalist with both his candor and his cynicism. Ehrlichman explained that the Nixon White House, quote, had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. Although neither victory nor defeat was ever declared in the war on drugs, you seldom hear the phrase on the lips of government officials and politicians anymore. I suspect there are two reasons for their silence. As a matter of politics, the government has less need of draconian drug laws since declaring a new war in 2001. The war on terror has taken over from the war on drugs as a justification for expanding government power and curbing civil liberties. And as a matter of public health, it's become obvious to anyone paying attention that, after a half century of waging war on drugs, it is the drugs that are winning. Criminalizing drugs has done little to discourage their use or to lower rates of addiction and death from overdose. The drug war's principal legacy has been to fill our prisons with hundreds of thousands of nonviolent criminals, a great many more of them black people than hippies. This, then, is the first historical context in which my account of growing opium in 1996 should be read as a window on a dark and fearful time in America, when you didn't have to leave your garden to become a criminal and put yourself in serious legal jeopardy. But there is another historical context in which the piece can be read, and this one nobody was aware of at the time. The words opium and opiate carry a very different set of connotations today than they did when I planted my poppies in 1996. Now, the words conjure a national public health catastrophe, but in 1996, there was no opioid crisis in America. What there was were maybe half a million heroin addicts and about 4,700 deaths from drug overdoses each year. At the time, these tragedies were often cited to justify the war on drugs, but in a country of 270 million, this hardly qualified as a public health crisis, which is the reason cannabis had to be added to the war's list of targets. Today, by comparison, deaths from overdose of opiates, both licit and illicit, approach 50,000 a year, and an estimated 2 million Americans are addicted to opiates of one kind or another. Another 10 million abuse opiates, according to the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. After the coronavirus, the opiate epidemic represents the biggest threat to public health since the AIDS-HIV epidemic. 
The chief culprit in the opiate epidemic is not a virus, however, or even the illicit drug economy. It's a corporation. What I didn't know when I was conducting my illegal experiments with opium is that at the very same historical moment, the pharmaceutical industry was planting the first seeds of the opioid crisis. The same summer that the Drug Enforcement Agency, or DEA, was quietly cracking down on gardeners, seed merchants, writers, and other small-timers messing around with opium poppies, a little-known pharmaceutical company called Purdue Pharma, headquartered in Stamford, Connecticut, 60 miles down Route 7 from my garden, had begun marketing a new, slow-release opiate called OxyContin. Launched in 1996, Purdue's aggressive marketing campaign for OxyContin convinced doctors that the company's new formulation was safer and less addictive than other opiates. They assured the medical community that pain was being undertreated and that the new opiate could benefit not just cancer and surgery patients, but people suffering from arthritis, back pain, and workplace injuries. The campaign produced an explosion in prescriptions for OxyContin that would earn the company's owners, the Sackler family, more than $35 billion, while leading to more than 230,000 deaths by overdose. But that figure grossly understates the number of casualties from OxyContin. Thousands of people who became addicted to legal painkillers eventually turned to the underground when they could no longer obtain or afford prescription opiates. Four out of five new heroin users used prescription painkillers first. At the same time a war against illicit drugs was raging, ostensibly to stamp out a real but fairly modest public health problem, a legal FDA-approved opiate was being pushed on people, creating what became a genuine public health crisis. Read in this light, the drug war machinations looming over my garden and story seem almost comic in a Keystone Cops sort of way. They went that away. Humans have been cultivating opium poppies for more than 5,000 years as one of the most important medicines in the pharmacopoeia. For most of that time, we have recognized the two-faced nature of the flower and the powerful molecules it gives us, that it is at once a blessing to those in pain or on the verge of death and a grave peril to any who would abuse it. To both the Greeks and Romans, the poppy flower symbolized both the sweetness of sleep and the prospect of death. We're evidently not as good as they were at holding two contradictory ideas in our heads. For today, who has a good word to say about opiates or opium? Blessing no longer comes to mind, except perhaps at the deathbed. But what is true of the opium poppy is true for all the medicines that plants have given us. They are both allies and poisons at once, which means it's up to us to devise a healthy relationship with them. As for the poppy flower itself, it may soon disappear from our age-old relationship to the opiates as much stronger and cheaper synthetic versions of the flower's alkaloids come to dominate both the legal and illicit markets for painkillers. Something will be lost when that happens. One of the wagers of my experiment in the garden is that there might be some value in getting to know the opium poppy in all its aspects and power— before its role in our lives, once so important, is downgraded to ornament. Opium Made Easy Last season was a strange one in my garden. 
Notable not only for the unseasonably cool and wet weather, the talk of gardeners all over New England, but also for its climate of paranoia. One flower was the cause, a tall, breathtaking poppy with silky scarlet petals and a black heart, the growing of which, I discovered rather too late, is a felony under state and federal law. Actually, it's not quite as simple as that. My poppies were or became felonious. Another gardener's might or might not be. The legality of growing opium poppies, whose seeds are sold under many names, including the breadseed poppy, Papaver pioniflorum, and most significantly, Papaver somniferum, is a tangled issue turning on questions of nomenclature and epistemology that it took me the better part of the summer to sort out. But before I try to explain, let me offer a friendly warning to any gardeners who might wish to continue growing this spectacular annual. The less you know about it, the better off you are, in legal, if not horticultural, terms. Because whether or not the opium poppies in your garden are illicit depends not on what you do, or even intend to do with them, but very simply on what you know about them. Hence my warning. If you have any desire to grow opium poppies, you would be wise to stop listening right now. As for me, I'm afraid that, at least in the eyes of the law, I'm already lost, having now tasted of the forbidden fruit of poppy knowledge. Indeed, the more I learned about poppies, the guiltier my poppies became, and the more fearful grew my days, and to some extent also my nights. Until the day last fall, that is, when I finally pulled out my poppy's withered stalks and with a tremendous feeling of relief, threw them on the compost, thereby, I hope, rejoining the ranks of gardeners who don't worry about visits from the police. It started out, if not quite innocently, then legally enough. Or at least that's what I thought back in February when I added a couple of poppy varieties, P. somniferum as well as P. pioniflorum and P. roeus, to my annual order of flowers and vegetables from the seed catalogs. But the state of popular and even expert knowledge about poppies is confused, to say the least. Miss and even disinformation is rife. I'd read in Martha Stewart Living that, Quote, contrary to general belief, there is no federal law against growing P. somniferum, end quote. Before planting, I consulted my tailor's guide to annuals, a generally reliable reference that did allude to the fact that, quote, the juice of the unripe pod yields opium, the production of which is illegal in the United States, end quote. But tailors said nothing worrisome about the plants themselves. I figured that if the seeds could be sold legally— and I found somniferum on offer in a half-dozen well-known catalogs, though it was not always sold under that name, how could the obvious next step, i.e. planting the seeds according to the directions on the packet, possibly be a federal offense? Were this the case, you would think there'd at least be a disclaimer in the catalogs. So it seemed to me that I could remain safely on the sunny side of the law just as long as I didn't attempt to extract any opium from my poppies. Yet, I have to confess that this was a temptation I grappled with all last summer. You see, I'd become curious as to whether it was in fact possible, as I'd recently read, for a gardener of average skills to obtain a narcotic from a plant grown in this country from legally available seeds. To another gardener, this will not seem odd, for we gardeners are like that, 
eager to try the improbable, to see if we can't successfully grow an artichoke in Zone 5 or make echinacea tea from the roots of our purple coneflowers. Deep down, I suspect that many gardeners regard themselves as minor league alchemists, transforming the dross of compost and water and sunlight into substances of rare value and beauty and power. Also, one of the greatest satisfactions of gardening is the independence it can confer from the greengrocer, the florist, the pharmacist, and for some, the drug dealer. One does not have to go all the way back to the land to experience the satisfaction of providing for yourself off the grid of the national economy. So, yes, I was curious to know if I could make opium at home, especially if I could do so without making a single illicit purchase. It seemed to me that this would indeed represent a particularly impressive sort of alchemy. I wasn't at all sure, however, whether I was prepared to go quite that far. I mean, opium. I'm not 18 anymore or in any position to undertake such a serious risk. I am, in fact, 42, a family man, as they say, and homeowner whose drug-taking days are behind him. Not that they aren't sometimes fondly recalled, the prevailing cant about drug abuse notwithstanding, but now I have a kid and a mortgage and a keo. There is simply no place in my grown-up, middle-class lifestyle for an arrest on federal narcotics charges, much less for the forfeiture of my family's house and land, which often accompanies such an arrest. It was one thing I reasoned to grow poppies, quite another to manufacture narcotics from them. I figured I knew where the line between these two deeds fell and felt confident I could safely tow it. Note. Readers of my last book, How to Change Your Mind, as well as the upcoming chapter on mescaline, will perhaps chuckle at these statements. But in these days of the American drug war, as it turns out, the border between the sunny country of the law-abiding, my country, and a shadowy realm of SWAT teams, mandatory minimum sentences, acid forfeitures, and ruined lives is not necessarily where one thinks it is one may even cross it unawares. As I delved into the horticulture and jurisprudence of the opium poppy last summer, I made the acquaintance of one man, a contemporary and a fellow journalist, who had had his life pretty well wrecked after stepping across that very border. In his case, though, there is reason to believe it was the border that did the moving. He was arrested on charges of possessing the same flowers that countless thousands of Americans are right now growing in their gardens and keeping in vases in their living rooms. What appears to have set him apart was the fact that he had published a book about this flower in which he described a simple method for converting its seed pod into a narcotic, knowledge that the government has shown it will go to great lengths to keep quiet. Just where this leaves me and this article is, well, the subject of this article. Chapter 1 Before recounting my own adventures among the poppies and encounters with the poppy police, I need to tell you a little about this acquaintance, since he was the inspiration for my own experiments in poppy cultivation, as well as the direct cause of the first flush of my paranoia. His name is Jim Hogshire. 
He first came to my attention a few years ago when this magazine, Harper's, published an excerpt from Pills A Go-Go, one of the wittier and more informative of the countless zines that sprang up in the early 90s when desktop publishing first made it possible for individuals single-handedly to publish even the narrowest of special interest periodicals. Hogshire's own special interest, his passion really, was the world of pharmaceuticals, the chemistry, regulation, and effects of licit and illicit drugs. Published on multicolored stock, more or less whenever Hogshire got around to it, Pilsagogo printed inside news about the pharmaceutical industry alongside first-hand accounts of Hogshire's own self-administered drug experiments, pill hacking, he called it. The zine had a strong libertarian populist bent and was given to attacking the FDA, DEA, and AMA with gusto whenever those institutions stood between the American people and their pills, pills that Hogshire regarded with the reverence born of their astounding powers to heal as well as to alter the course of human history and not incidentally consciousness. Hogshire's reports on his drug experiments made for amusing reading. I particularly remember his description, reprinted in Harper's, of the effects of a deliberate overdose of dextromethorphan hydrobromide, or DM, a common ingredient in over-the-counter cough syrups and nighttime cold remedies. After drinking eight ounces of Robitussin DM, Hogshire reported waking up at 4 a.m. and determining that he should now shave and go to Kinko's to get some copies made. This is what he wrote. That may seem normal, but the fact was that I had a reptilian brain. My whole way of thinking and perceiving had changed. I got in the shower and shaved. While I was shaving, I thought that for all I knew, I was hacking my face to pieces. Since I didn't see any blood or feel any pain, I didn't worry about it. Had I looked down and seen that I had grown another limb, I wouldn't have been surprised at all. I would have just used it. The world became a binary place of dark and light, on and off, safety and danger. I sat at my desk and tried to write down how this felt so I could look at it later. I wrote down the word Cro-Magnon. I was very aware that I was stupid. Luckily, there were only a couple of people in Kinko's, and one of them was a friend. She confirmed that my pupils were of different sizes. One was out of round. I knew there was no way I could know if I was correctly adhering to social customs. I didn't even know how to modulate my voice. Was I talking too loud? Did I look like a regular person? I understood that I was involved in a big contraption called civilization and that certain things were expected of me, but I could not comprehend what the hell those things might be. I found being a reptile kind of pleasant. I was content to sit there and monitor my surroundings. I was alert, but not anxious. Every now and then, I would do a reality check to make sure I wasn't masturbating or strangling someone because of my vague awareness that more was expected of me than just being a reptile. My interest in Hogshire's drug journalism was mild and strictly literary. As I mentioned, my own experiments with drugs were past and never terribly ambitious to begin with. I'd been too terrified ever to try hallucinogens, and my sole experience with opiates had accompanied some unpleasant dental work. I'd grown some marijuana once in the early 80s, when doing so was no big deal, legally speaking. But things are different now. Growing a handful of marijuana plants today could cost me my freedom and my house. We may not hear as much now about the war on drugs as we did in the days of Nancy Reagan, William Bennett, and Just Say No. But in fact, the drug war continues unabated, 
If anything, the Clinton administration is waging it even more intensely than its predecessors, having spent a record $15 billion on drug enforcement last year and added federal death penalties for so-called drug kingpins, a category defined to include large-scale growers of marijuana. Every autumn, police helicopters equipped with infrared sensors trace regular flight paths over the farm fields in my corner of New England. Just the other day, they spotted 30 marijuana plants tucked into a cornfield up the road from me, less than 100 yards as the crow flies from my garden. For all I know, the helicopters peer down into my garden on their way. The Supreme Court has recently ruled that such overflights do not constitute an illegal search of one's property, one of a string of recent rulings that have strengthened the government's hand in fighting the drug war. Overflights and other such measures have certainly proved an effective deterrent with me. And anyway, the few times I've had access to marijuana in the last few years, my biggest problem was always finding the time to smoke it. Whatever else it may be, recreational drug use is a leisure activity, and leisure is something in woefully short supply at this point in my life. No small part of the pleasure I got from reading Hawkshire's drug adventures consisted of nostalgia for a time when I could set aside a couple of hours, even a whole day, to see what it might feel like to have a reptilian brain. Nowadays, what leisure time I do have tends to be spent in the garden, a passion that in recent years has turned into a professional interest. I am, among other things, a garden writer. I mention this to help explain the keen interest I took in Jim Hogshire's subsequent project, a somewhat unconventional treatise on gardening titled Opium for the Masses, published in 1994 by an outfit in Port Townsend, Washington, called Lumpanics Unlimited. The book's astonishing premise is that anyone can obtain opiates cheaply and safely and maybe even legally or at least beneath the radar of the authorities who, if Hogshire was to be believed, were overlooking something rather significant in their pursuit of the war on drugs. According to Hogshire's book, it is possible to grow opium from legally available seeds. He provided detailed horticultural instructions or, to make matters even easier, to obtain it from poppy seed pods, which happen to be one of the more popular types of dried flowers sold in florist and crafts shops. Whether grown or purchased, fresh or dried, these seed pods contain significant quantities of morphine, codeine, and thebane, the principal alkaloids found in opium. Hogshire's claim flew in the face of everything I'd ever heard about opium, that the right kind of poppies grow only in faraway places like the Golden Triangle of Southeast Asia, that harvesting opium requires vast cadres of peasant workers armed with special razor blades, and that the extraction of opiates is a painstaking and complicated process. Hogshire made it sound like child's play. In addition to the horticultural advice, Opium for the Masses offered some simple recipes for making poppy tea from either store-bought or homegrown poppies, and Hogshire reported that a cup of this infusion, which is apparently a traditional home remedy in many cultures, would reliably relieve pain and anxiety and, quote, produce a sense of well-being and relaxation, end quote. Bigger doses of the tea would produce euphoria and what he described as a waking sleep populated by dreams of a terrific vividness. Hogshire cautioned that the tea, like all opiates, was addictive if taken too many days in a row. Otherwise, its only notable side effect was constipation. 
As for the legal implications, Hogshire was encouragingly vague. Quote, opium, the juice of the poppy, is a controlled substance, but it's unclear how illegal the plant itself is, end quote. Here is how I figured one might be able to toe the line safely between the cultivation of opium poppies, routine enough in the gardening world, and felony possession of opium. If opium is the extruded sap of the unripe seed pod, then the dried heads used to make tea by definition did not involve one with opium. Hogshire didn't quite go that far, but he did write that, quote, it is unclear whether it is illegal to brew tea from poppies you've purchased legally from the store, end quote. As will soon become evident, Jim Hogshire is no longer unclear on either of these points. Last winter, Hogshire's lively little paperback joined the works of Penelope Hobhouse on gardening, Gertrude Jekyll, Gardener's Testament, and Louise B.B. Wilder, color in my garden, on my bedside table. Winter is when the gardener reads and dreams and draws up schemes for the borders he will plant come spring, and the more I read about what the ancient Sumerians had called the flower of joy, the more intriguing the prospect of growing poppies in my garden became, aesthetically as well as pharmacologically. From Hogshire, I drifted over to the more mainstream garden writers, many of whom wrote extravagantly of opium poppies, of their ephemeral outward beauty for the blooms last but a day or two, and their dark inward mystery. Poppies have cast a spell over gardeners and artists for many centuries, went one typical garden writer's lead. This was inevitably quickly followed by the phrase, dark connotations of the opium poppy. But nowhere in my reading did I find a clear statement that planting Papaversa omniferum would put a gardener on the wrong side of the law. When grown in a garden, one authority on annuals declared, somewhat ambiguously, the cultivation of P. somniferum is a case of honi soit qui mal y pense, shame to him who thinks ill. In general, the garden writers tended to ignore or gloss over the legal issue and focus instead on the beauty of somniferum, which all concurred was exquisite. Reading about poppies that winter, I wondered if it was possible to untangle the flower's physical beauty from the knowledge of its narcotic properties. It seemed to me that even the lady garden writers, who presumably would never think of sampling opium, had been subconsciously influenced by its mood-altering potential. Louise B.B. Wilder tells us that poppies set her, quote, heart vibrating with their waywardness, end quote. Merely to gaze at a poppy was to feel dreamy, to judge by the many American Impressionist paintings of the flower, or from the experience of Dorothy and company, who you'll recall were interrupted on their journey through Oz when they passed out in a field of scarlet poppies. If ever there was an innocent angle from which to gaze at the opium poppy, our culture seems long ago to have forgotten where it is. By now, I too was falling under the spell of the opium poppy. I dug out my college edition of De Quincey's Confessions of an English Opium Eater, and I reread Coleridge's description of his opium dreams, quote, How divine that repose is, what a spot of enchantment, a green spot of fountains and flowers and trees in the very heart of a waste of sands, end quote. 
I read accounts of the Opium Wars, in which England went to war for no loftier purpose than to keep China's harbors open to opium clipper ships bound from India, whose colonial economy depended on opium exports. I read about 19th century medicine, in whose arsenal opium, usually in the form of a tincture called laudanum, was easily the most important weapon. In part, this was because the principal goal of medical care at that time was not so much to cure illness as to relieve pain, and there was and is no better painkiller than opium and its derivatives. But opium-based preparations were also used to treat or prevent a great variety of ills, including dysentery, malaria, tuberculosis, cough, insomnia, anxiety, and even colic in infants. Since opium is extremely bitter, nursing mothers would induce babies to ingest it by smearing the medicine on their nipples. Regarded as God's own medicine, preparations of opium were as common in the Victorian medicine cabinet as aspirin is in ours. Is there another flower that has had anywhere near the opium poppy's impact on history and literature? In the 19th century especially, the poppy played as crucial a role in the course of events as petroleum has played in our own century. Opium was the basis of national economies, a staple of medicine, an essential item of trade, a spur to the Romantic Revolution in poetry, even a casus belli. Yet I had to canvas dozens of friends before I found one who'd actually tried it. Opium in its smokable form is apparently all but impossible to obtain today, no doubt because smuggling heroin is so much easier and more lucrative. One unintended consequence of the war on drugs has been to increase the potency of all illicit drugs. Garden variety marijuana has given way to powerful new strains of sensomia and powdered cocaine to crack. The friend who had once smoked opium smiled wistfully as he recalled the long-ago afternoon. The dreams, the dreams, was all he would say. When I pressed him for a more detailed account, he referred me to Robert Bulwer-Lytton, the Victorian poet, who'd likened the effect to having one's soul rubbed down with silk. There was no question that I would have to try to grow it, if only as a historical curiosity. Okay, not only that, but that too. Again, you have to understand the gardener's mentality. I once grew Jenny Lind melons, a popular 19th century variety named for the most famous soprano of the time, just to see if I could grow them, but also to glean some idea what the word melon might have conjured in the mind of Walt Whitman or Chester Arthur. I planted an heirloom apple tree, a Sopus Spitzenberg, simply because Thomas Jefferson had planted it at Monticello, declaring it the finest eating apple in the world. Gardening is, among other things, an exercise of the historical imagination, and I was by now eager to stare into the black heart of an opium poppy with my own eyes. So I began studying the flower sections of the seed catalogs, which by February formed a foot-high pile on my desk. I found breadseed poppies, whose seeds are used in baking, for sale in Seeds Blum, a catalog of heirloom plants from Idaho, and several double varieties, that is, flowers with multiple petals, described as Popover pianoflorum in the catalog of Thompson & Morgan, the British seed merchants. Burpee carries a breadseed poppy called peony flowered, whose blooms resemble ruffled pom-poms, according to the catalog. 
In Parks, a large mid-market seed catalog from South Carolina, their covers invariably feature scrubbed American children arranged in a sea of flowers and vegetables, I found a white double poppy called White Cloud and identified as Papaver somniferum pianoflorum. Although I didn't know it at the time, all these poppies turn out to be strains of Papaver somniferum. In Cook's, the catalog from which I usually order my seeds for salad greens and exotic vegetables, I found Pionoflorum and Roeus, as well as two intriguing varieties of Somniferum, Single Danish Flag, a tall poppy that, judging from the catalog copy, closely resembles the classic scarlet poppies I'd read about and seen in Impressionist paintings, and Hens and Chicks, about which the catalog was particularly enthusiastic. Quote, the large lavender blooms are a wonderful prelude to the seed pods, which are striking in a dried arrangement. A large central pod, the hen, is surrounded by dozens of tiny pods, the chicks. End quote. More to the point, Hogshire had indicated in Opium for the Masses that hens and chicks might prove especially potent. This was an issue I had wondered about. The ornamental varieties on sale in the catalogs had obviously been bred for their visual, or in the case of the breadseed poppies, culinary qualities. It seemed likely that as breeders concentrated on these traits to the neglect of others, the morphine and codeine content of these poppies might have dwindled to nothing. So what were the best varieties to plant for opiates? I couldn't very well pose that question to my usual sources in the gardening world, to Dora Galitsky, the horticulturist who answers the helpline at the New York Botanical Garden, or to Shepard Ogden, the knowledgeable and helpful proprietor of Cook's. So I tried, through a mutual friend, to get in touch with Jim Hawkshire himself. I emailed him, explaining what I was up to and asking for recommendations as to the best poppy varieties, as well as for advice on cultivation. As I would do with any fellow flower enthusiast, I asked him if he had any seeds he might be willing to share with me and told him about the varieties I'd found in the catalogs. I asked him, how can I be confident that these seeds, which have obviously been bred and selected for their ornamental qualities, will work? As it turned out, I picked the wrong time to ask. One morning a few days later, and before I'd had any response to my email, I got a call from our mutual friend saying that Hogshire had been arrested in Seattle and was being held in the city jail on felony drug charges. It seems that on March 6th, a Seattle Police Department SWAT team had burst into Hogshire's apartment armed with a search warrant claiming that he was running a drug lab. Hogshire and his wife Heidi were held in handcuffs while the police conducted a six-hour search that yielded a jar of prescription pills, a few firearms, and several bunches of dried poppies wrapped in cellophane. The poppies had evidently come from a florist, but Hogshire was nevertheless charged with, quote, possession of opium poppy with intent to manufacture and distribute, end quote. The guns were legal, but one was cited in the indictment as an enhancement. Another product of the drug war is the fact that the penalties on some narcotics charges rise steeply when the crime involves a firearm, even when that firearm is legal or registered. Neither Jim nor Heidi Hogshire had ever been arrested before. Now, Jim was being held on $10,000 bail, Heidi on $2,000. If convicted, Jim faced 10 years in prison. Heidi faced a two-year sentence on a lesser charge. 
Forgive me for the sudden upwelling of naked self-interest, but all I could think about was that email of mine, buried somewhere on the hard drive of Hogshire's computer, which no doubt was already in the hands of the police forensics unit. Or maybe the message had been intercepted somehow, part of a DEA tap on Hogshire's phone or a surveillance of his email account. I could hardly believe my stupidity. Suddenly, I thought I could feel the dull tug of the underworld's undertow, felt as if I'd been somehow implicated in something, though exactly what that might be, I couldn't say. Yet, my confidence that I stood firmly on the sunny side of the law had been shaken. They had my name. But this was crazy, paranoid thinking, wasn't it? After all, I hadn't done anything except order some flower seeds and write a mildly suggestive piece of email. As for Hogshire, surely there had to be more to this bust than a bunch of dried poppies. It didn't make any sense. I asked our mutual friend if he would be in touch with Hogshire anytime soon because I was eager to talk to him, to learn more about his peculiar case. Also, I added, as casually as I could manage, would you mind asking him whether he's gotten any email from me? Chapter 2 my poppy seeds arrived a couple of weeks later. My plan was to sow them, see if I could get flowers and pods, and decide only then whether to proceed any further. I'd been spooked by Hogshire's arrest, doubly spooked to learn from our friend that in fact he had never received my email, undelivered email being highly unusual in my experience. But I still had little reason to doubt that growing poppies for ornamental purposes was legal, and so, on an unseasonably warm afternoon in the first week of April, I planted my seeds, two packets, each containing a thimbleful of grayish-blue specks. They looked exactly like what they were, poppy seeds, the same ones you find on a Kaiser roll or a bagel. In fact, it is possible to germinate poppy seeds bought from the supermarket spice aisle. Also, eating such seeds prior to taking a drug test can produce a positive result. I'd prepared a tiny section of my garden, an area where the soil is especially loamy and, somewhat more to the point, several old apple trees block the view from the road. Papaver somniferum is a hardy annual that grows best in cool conditions, so it isn't necessary to wait for the last frost day to sow. I read that in the South, in fact, gardeners sow their poppies in late fall and winter them over. Sowing is a simple matter of broadcasting or tossing the seeds over the surface of the cultivated soil and watering them in. Since the seeds are so tiny, there's no need to cover them, but it is a good idea to mix the seeds with a handful of sand in order to spread them as evenly as possible over the planting area. Within ten days, my soil had sprouted a soft grass of slender green blades half an inch high. These were soon followed by the poppy's first set of true leaves, which are succulent and spiky, not unlike those of a loose-leaf lettuce. The color is a pale, vegetal, blue-tinged green, and the foliage is slightly dusted-looking. Glaucus is the horticultural term for it. The poppies came up in thick clumps that would clearly need thinning. The problem was how much thinning and when. Hogshire's book was vague on this point, suggesting a spacing of anywhere from six inches to two feet between plants. My straight gardening books advised six to eight inches, but I realized that their recommendations assumed that the gardener's chief interest was flowers, 
I, of course, was less interested in floriferousness than in um, big, juicy pods. Eventually, I called one of the seed companies that sell poppies and delicately asked about optimal spacing, assuming for the sake of argument someone wanted to maximize the size and quality of his poppy heads. I don't think I aroused any suspicion from the person I talked to who advised a minimum of eight inches between plants. Around the time I first thinned my poppies, late in May, a friend who knew of my new horticultural passion sent me a newspaper clipping that briefly stopped me in my tracks. It was a gardening column by CZ Guest in the New York Post that carried the headline, Just Say No to Poppies. Guest wrote that although opium poppy seeds are legal to possess and sell, quote, the live plants, or even dried dead ones, fall into the same legal category as cocaine and heroin, end quote. This seemed very hard to believe, and the fact that the source was a socialite writing in a tabloid not known for its veracity made me inclined to disregard it. But I guess my confidence had been undermined, because I decided it wouldn't hurt to make sure Guest was wrong. I put in a call to the local barracks of the state police. Without giving my name, I told the officer who answered the phone that I was a gardener here in town and wanted to double-check that the poppies in my garden were legal. Poppies, he said, not a problem. Poppies have been declared a flower. I told him the ones I had planted were labeled somniferum and that a neighbor had told me that that meant they were opium poppies. What color are they, he asked. Are they orange? This didn't seem especially relevant. I'd read that opium poppies could be white, purple, scarlet, lavender, and black, as well as a reddish-orange. I told him that mine were both lavender and red. Those are not illegal, he said. I've got the orange ones in my garden, about two feet tall, came with the house. What you've got to understand is that all poppies have some opium in them. It's only a problem if you start to manufacture opium. Like if I slid open a head, I asked? Nah, you can cut one of them open and look inside. It's only if you do it with intent to sell or profit. But what if I had a lot of them? Say you planted two acres of poppies just for scenery looks? It's not a problem until you start manufacturing. I was happy to have the state troopers okay, but by now a seed of doubt had been planted in my mind. Whether it was CZ Guest or the waylaid email, that stupid, incriminating query careening unencrypted through cyberspace, I'd started to get the willies about my poppies. A mild case, to be sure, except for one harrowing night in May when I was caught in the grip of a near nightmare. In my dream, I awake to the sound of police car doors slamming out in front of my house, followed by footsteps on the porch. I leap out of bed and race out the back door into the garden to destroy the evidence. I start eating my poppies, which in the dream are already dry, dry as dust, in fact, but I stuff the pods and the stems and the leaves into my mouth as fast as I possibly can. The chewing is horrible, Sisyphean, the swallowing almost impossible. I feel like I am eating my way through a vast desert of plant material, racing madly to beat the clock. My first impulse on waking was to rip out my poppies right away. My second impulse was to laugh. So this was my first opium dream. Chapter 3 when Jim Hogshire entered my life in April, my poppies were six inches tall and thriving, their bed a deep, lush carpet of serrated green. 
I had heard that Hogshire had raised bail, and our mutual friend was trying to put us in touch. I wanted to talk to him about his case, which I was now thinking of writing about, but I also still hoped to pick up some horticultural tips. I couldn't phone Hogshire because he'd been thrown out of his apartment. It seems that Washington, like many states, has a law under which tenants charged with drug crimes may be summarily evicted. After the bust, someone from the sheriff's office had paid Hogshire's landlady a visit, notifying her of her rights in this regard and urging her to serve the Hogshires with an eviction notice. It sounded to me like a violation of Hogshire's right to due process. After all, he hadn't been found guilty of anything. This was my first introduction to what civil liberties lawyers have taken to calling the drugs exception to the Bill of Rights. Over the past several years, in cases involving drugs, the Supreme Court has repeatedly upheld the government's new crop of laws, penalties, and police tactics, thereby narrowing the scope of due process as well as long-established protections against illegal search, double jeopardy, and entrapment. Hogshire began calling me at odd hours of the day and night. He sounded like a man who had been brought to the end of his tether, edgy and distrustful. Disquisitions on Popover nomenclature drifted into diatribes about the indignities his pet birds had suffered at the hands of the police. The voice on the phone was a far cry from the urbane and funny character I'd been reading in Pills Agogo. But then, Hogshire's bust had left him broken homeless, bouncing from one friend's couch to another and adrift on uncharted legal waters, for no one had ever been prosecuted before for possessing dried poppies bought from a florist. Much of what he told me sounded paranoid and crazy, an improbable nightmare featuring a snitch letter to the police from a disgruntled houseguest, a search warrant alleging, among other things, that Hogshire was making narcotics out of Sudafed, and a police officer who waved Hogshire's writings in his face and asked, With what you write, weren't you expecting this? Listening to Hogshire's fantastic account over the phone made me more than a little skeptical. And yet everything he told me, I subsequently found confirmed in the court records. According to documents filed by the prosecutor's office, it was indeed an informant's letter that led to the March 6th raid on the Hogshire's apartment. The letter, sent to the Seattle police by a man named Bob Black, was cited along with Hogshire's published writings as probable cause in the search warrant. Bob Black is the disgruntled houseguest, the black hat in Hogshire's bizarre tale. A fellow Loom Panics author, The Abolition of Work and Other Essays, Black is a self-described anarchist whom the Hogshires met for the first time when he arrived to spend the night on February 10th. Loom Panics owner Mike Hoy had asked the Hogshires if, as a personal favor, they'd be willing to put Black up in their apartment while he was in Seattle on assignment. The evening went very badly. Accounts differ on the particulars, as well as on the chemical catalysts involved, but an argument about religion, Hogshire is a Muslim, somehow degenerated into a scuffle in which Black grabbed Heidi Hogshire around the throat and Jim threatened his guest with a loaded M1 rifle. Ten days later, Black wrote to the Seattle Police Narcotics Unit, quote, to inform you of a drug laboratory in the apartment of Jim Hogshire and Heidi Faust Hogshire, end quote. The letter, a denunciation worthy of a sans-culotte, deserves to be quoted at length. It reads, The Hogshires are addicted to opium 
which they consume as a tea and by smoking. In a few hours on February 10-11, I saw Jim Hogshire drink several quarts of the tea and his wife smaller amounts. He also took dexedrine and Ritalin several times. They have a vacuum pump and other drug manufacturing tech. Hogshire told me he was working out a way to manufacture heroin from Sudafed. Hogshire is the author of the book Opium for the Masses, which explains how to grow opium and how to produce it from the fresh plant or from seeds obtainable from artist supply stores. His own consumption is so huge that he must be growing it somewhere. I enclose a copy of parts of his book. He also publishes a magazine, Pills a Go-Go, under an alias, promoting the fraudulent acquisition and recreational consumption of controlled drugs. Should you ever pay the Hogshires a visit, you should know that they keep an M1 rifle leaning against the wall near the computer. Largely on the strength of this letter, the police were able to get a magistrate to sign a search warrant and raid the Hogshire's apartment. It was a quarter to seven in the evening, and Jim Hogshire was reading a book in his living room when he heard the knock at the door. The instant he answered it, he found himself thrown up against a wall. Heidi, who was at the grocery store at the time, arrived home to find her husband in handcuffs and a SWAT team, outfitted in black ninja suits, ransacking her apartment. The SWAT team was so large, 20 officers by Jim's estimate, that only a few could fit into the one-bedroom apartment at a time. The rest lined up in the hall outside. Do you publish this? Jim recalls one officer demanding to know as he waved a copy of Pills a Go-Go in his face. And then... Where's your poppy patch? Jim pointed out that it was wintertime and asked the officer, why should I grow poppies when they're on sale in the stores? You're lying. This particular SWAT team specialized in raiding drug labs, which may have been what they expected to find in the Hogshire's apartment. They had to settle, however, for dried poppies, a sealed cardboard box containing 10 bunches wrapped in cellophane. The police refused to believe that Hogshire had bought them from a store. The police also found the vacuum pump Black had mentioned, though they didn't bother to seize it, the jar of pills, two rifles and three pistols, all legal, a thermite flare that Hogshire had bought at a gun show, a box of test tubes, and several copies of opium for the masses. The Hogshires spent three harrowing days in jail before learning of the charges filed against them. Heidi was charged with possession of a Schedule II controlled substance, the opium poppies. Jim was charged with, quote, possession of opium poppy with intent to manufacture or distribute, end quote, an offense that, with the firearms enhancement, carries a 10-year sentence. At a preliminary hearing in April, Jim Hogshire was fortunate enough to come before a judge who raised a skeptical eyebrow at the charges filed against him. The hearing had its comic moments. In support of the government's assertion that Hogshire had intent to distribute, the prosecutor, apparently unfamiliar with the literary reference, cited the title of his book. It's not called Opium for Me, Opium for My Friends, or Opium for Anyone I Know. It's called Opium for the Masses, which indicates that it's opium for a lot of people. The judge, a man who evidently knew a thing or two about gardening, found the language in the indictment particularly dubious. The state had accused Hogshire not of manufacturing opium, but of manufacturing opium poppies. How do you manufacture an opium poppy, the judge asked, and then answered his own question. You propagate them. It's the only way. 
by propagate, the judge meant planting and growing, yet, as he pointed out, the state had presented no evidence that Hogshire had been doing any such thing. If you had him with a field of poppies, then I think you've got him propagating them in some way, the judge said, particularly with the cut poppies and extracting the chemical. But without evidence that Hogshire had actually grown the poppies, the judge reasoned, there was no basis for the manufacturing charge. The prosecutor sought to recover by citing snapshots seized in the raid that showed Hogshire in an unidentified garden with live poppies whose heads had been slit. He also claimed that, quote, there are poppies outside of his apartment, end quote. There may have been an element of truth to this. According to Hogshire, his landlady had had opium poppies in her garden, though in early March, at the time of the raid, it would have been too early in the season for them to have come up. The judge was unpersuaded. He asked, can you tell me whether those are the relevant genus and species? My mom has poppies outside of her house. The prosecutor could not satisfy the judge on this point, so the judge granted the defense's motion to dismiss the sole charge against Hogshire. One might think that this would have been the end of Jim Hogshire's ordeal. But the state evidently wasn't through with him, for in June, after dropping charges against Heidi in exchange for a statement asserting that everything seized in the raid belonged to her husband, the prosecutor refiled charges, this time for simple possession of opium poppies, and also added a new felony count to the amended indictment, possession of an explosive device, citing the thermite flare found during the raid. An arraignment on the new charges was scheduled for June 28th. When Hogshire failed to appear, a warrant was issued for his arrest. Chapter 4 I read through the court papers with a mounting sense of personal panic, for the squabble in the Seattle courtroom did not in any way seem to challenge the underlying fact that growing or possessing opium poppies was apparently grounds for prosecution. I called Hogshire's attorney, who confirmed as much, and directed me to the text of the Federal Controlled Substances Act of 1970. The language of the statute was distressingly clear. Not only opium, but, quote, opium poppy and poppy straw, end quote, are defined as Schedule II controlled substances, right alongside PCP and cocaine. The prohibited poppy is defined as a plant of the species Popover somniferum L, except the seed thereof. And poppy straw is defined as all parts except the seeds of the opium poppy after mowing. In other words, dried poppies. Section 841 of the Act reads, It shall be unlawful for any person knowingly or intentionally to manufacture, distribute, or dispense, or possess with intent to manufacture, distribute, or dispense opium poppies. The definition of manufacturing includes propagating, i.e. growing. Three things struck me as noteworthy about the language of the statute. The first was that it goes out of its way to state that opium poppy seeds are, in fact, legal, presumably because of their legitimate culinary uses. There seems to be a chicken-and-egg paradox here, however, in which illegal poppy plants produce legal poppy seeds from which grow illegal poppy plants. The second thing that struck me about the statute's language was the fact that in order for growing opium poppies to be a crime, it must be done 
knowingly or intentionally. Opium poppies are commonly sold under more than one botanical name, only one of which, Papaver somniferum, is specifically mentioned in the law, so it is entirely possible that a gardener could be growing opium poppies without knowing it. There would therefore appear to be an innocent gardener defense. Not that it would have done me any good. At least some of the poppies I'd planted had been clearly labeled Papaver somniferum, a fact that I have, perhaps foolishly, confessed in these very pages to knowing. The third thing that struck me was the most stunning of all. The penalty for knowingly growing Papaver somniferum is a prison term of 5 to 20 years and a maximum fine of a million dollars. So CZ Guest had been right all along, and Martha Stewart and the state trooper wrong. The cultivation of opium poppies, regardless of the purpose, is indeed a felony, no different in the eyes of the law than manufacturing angel dust or crack cocaine. It didn't matter one bit whether I slit the heads or otherwise harvested my poppies. I had already crossed the line I thought I could safely tow, had crossed it, in fact, back on that April afternoon when I planted my seeds. What's more, I was vulnerable to the very charge that hadn't stuck to Hogshire, manufacturing. I was, potentially at least, in deep, deep trouble. Or was I? For had anyone beside Jim Hogshire ever actually been arrested for the possession or manufacture of poppies? A nexus search turned up no other case, nor did calls to more than a dozen lawyers, prosecutors, civil libertarians, and journalists who keep tabs on the drug war. Several were unaware that cultivating poppies was even against the law. When so informed, nearly all had precisely the same slightly bemused reaction. Don't you think the government has better things to do? I certainly hoped that this was the case, but there the menacing statute was, right there on the books. I called several experienced gardeners, too, hoping to get a clearer picture of the risk involved in growing poppies. One told me a story about a DEA agent on vacation in Idaho who tipped off the county sheriff that poppies were being grown in local gardens. Another had heard that the DEA had recently ordered the removal of the poppies growing at Jefferson's Monticello. Both stories sounded apocryphal, but both turned out to be true. I phoned a radio call-in gardening show, asking the resident expert whether I needed to worry about the opium poppies growing in my garden. I'm not a lawyer, she said, but wouldn't it be a shame if gardeners had to pass up such a magnificent flower? No one had heard of an actual bust, and most of the gardeners I spoke to seemed blithely unconcerned when I apprised them of the theoretical peril. Some treated me carefully, as though it were paranoid of me to worry. The answer lady at the New York Botanical Garden tried to reassure me, a bit patronizingly, I thought, by saying that, to her knowledge, there were no poppy patrols out there. Wayne Winterrode, the expert on annuals who'd written Shame to Him Who Thinks Ill of the Poppy Grower, likened the crime to tearing the tags off pillows and mattresses, another federal offense no one ever seemed to do time for. Laughing off my worries, he offered to send me seeds of a stunning jet-black opium poppy he grew in his Vermont garden. He also confirmed, as did a botanist I spoke to later, that breadseed poppies, as well as Papaver pianoflorum and giganteum were botanically no different than Papaver somniferum. I'd planted a handful of pianoflorum and had had no idea what they were until now. 
I took no small comfort in Winter Road's mattress tag analogy, if only because I really did not want to have to rip out my poppies, at least not now. For my first poppy was on the verge of bloom. It was the first week of July when I noticed at the end of one slender, downward-nodding stem a bud the size of a cherry covered in a soft, hairy down. The bud's outer covering, or calyx, had split open, and I could see the scarlet petals folded inside, packed as tightly as a parachute. By the following morning, the stem had drawn itself up to its full four-foot height, and the petals, five deltas of rich red silk freaked with black, had completely unfurled, casting off their calyx and turning to face the sun. That solitary, exquisite bloom was followed the next day by three more equally formidable dabs of pigment, then six, then a dozen, until my poppy patch was a terrific traffic-stopping blur of color, of a red so red as to be platonic. Now I knew what Robert Browning meant when he spoke of the poppy's red effrontery. This hue was a shout. The lavender blooms of another variety followed a few days later, a cooler but no less pure jolt of color. When the sun stood behind them toward evening, the petals were as luminous as stained glass. It is a pity, Louise B.B. Wilder wrote, that poppies are in such haste to shed their silken petals and display their crowned seed pods. Having seen them, I would have to disagree with her, and not only on pharmacological grounds. The poppy's seed pods are scarcely less arresting than its flowers. Swelling blue-green finials poised atop neat round pedestals called stipes, each pod crowned with an upturned anther like a Catherine wheel. For most of the month of July, my whole poppy patch was alive with interest. All at once and side by side, you had the drooping, sleepy buds, the brilliant flags of color, and the stately, upright urns of seeds, all set against the same cool backdrop of dusty green foliage. I couldn't decide what was more beautiful, leaf, bud, flower, or seed pod. I did decide that this poppy patch was as gorgeous as anything I'd ever planted. My fellow gardeners were making me feel foolish for even thinking of cutting down these flowers. Indeed, as I admired my poppies in their full midsummer glory, this unexpectedly lavish gift of nature, it was difficult to credit the notion that they could possibly be illegal, that for the purposes of the law, I might just as well be admiring packets of white powder on a table in some dingy uptown drug factory. But this, I knew, was indeed the case. And what a metamorphosis this was, that an act as ordinary and blameless as the planting of a handful of common and perfectly legal seeds could somehow transport one into the country of criminality. Yet this was a metamorphosis that required not only the physical seed and water and sunlight, but, crucially, a certain metaphysical ingredient, too the knowledge that the poppies I beheld were, in fact, of the genus Popover and the species Somniferum. For although ignorance of the law is never a defense, in the case of poppies, ignorance of botany may be. 
True, I had planted seeds I knew to be Papaverse omniferum and then blabbed that fact to the world. But what if instead I had planted breadseed poppies or the poppy seeds on a poppy seed bagel? What if I had planted only the Papaver pianiflorum I'd ordered, the one that I had no idea was really somniferum? As I stood there admiring the extravagantly doubled blooms of this poppy, I realized that growing it was no more felonious than growing asters or marigolds. For as long, that is, as I remained ignorant of the fact that this poppy, too, was somniferum. But it's too late for me now. I know too much. And so, dear listener, do you. It was precisely this knowledge that inspired the slightly cracked logic behind what I now decided to do. I had not planned to slit even one of my poppies for fear that it was the step that would take me across the line into criminality. But now I knew I had already taken that fateful step. In for a dime, in for a dollar. I know, this wasn't even a remotely rational approach to the situation. A slit seed pod in my garden would constitute proof that I knew exactly what kind of poppies I had. Yet, that particular summer afternoon, as I stood there alone with my ravishing poppies, in what, after all, was my garden, this logic seemed strangely compelling. So I combed my little stand of poppies for the fattest, most turgid seed head and bent it toward me. Taking the warm, plum-sized pod between my thumb and forefinger, I nicked its skin with a thumbnail. After a moment, a small bead of milky sap formed on the surface. The wound continued to bleed for a minute or two, the sap darkening perceptibly as it oxidized. And then it slowed, clotting. I dabbed the drop of opium with my forefinger, touched it to my tongue. It was indescribably bitter. The taste lingered on my palate for the rest of the afternoon. Chapter 5 When I finally met Jim Hogshire in mid-July, it had been two weeks since his missed court date. He was staying in Manhattan, a good place to be anonymous, as he mulled over his next move. On a hot summer morning, we met for coffee on West 23rd Street. Afterward, we planned to visit the flower district to shop for dried poppies and check out a rumor that Hogshire had heard about a crackdown on imports of dried poppies. Hogshire was dressed all in white, a slender 38-year-old with long blonde hair gathered in a neat ponytail. His face was handsome but careworn, his fine, angular features were lined, and his deep-set eyes, which are a striking shade of gray, were ringed with shadows. In conversation, I found him alternately expansive and wary, though only rarely did he ask to speak off the record. For someone who had no place to live, who was one traffic stop away from going to jail, Hawkshire seemed surprisingly composed, or at least a lot more composed than I would be under the circumstances. Hogshire is passionate about poppies, and we covered that mutual interest for a while, shuttling from Popover horticulture to jurisprudence, Popover nomenclature to chemistry. I learned about the 38 different alkaloids that have been found in somniferum, the biogenetic pathways from thebane to morphine, he lost me here, and the incredible potential of the Bentley compounds that have been synthesized from Popover bractetum. He told me that he'd first heard about poppy tea from a friend, a gardener whose Russian grandmother had brewed it as a home remedy. Hogshire started experimenting with poppies that he found growing literally right outside the door of my apartment, he said. 
The first few times I got it all wrong. I didn't grind the poppies up, and I was indiscriminate, using the leaves and stems as well as the pods. He continued, I also tried smoking all the various parts, using myself and my wife as guinea pigs. I proved to myself empirically that the heads are undoubtedly the most potent part of the plant. I realized that Hogshire regarded himself as heir to a great tradition of self-experimentation in Western medicine. Eventually, he learned how to make a potent tea from dried poppies, pulverizing a handful of heads in a coffee grinder, and then steeping the powder in hot water. I asked him to describe the effects of a cup of poppy tea. It's not a knock-you-on-your-ass sort of thing, he said, not like smoking opium. In fact, a lot of people will tell you they forget that they are high. It starts with a tickling feeling in the stomach that then rises up into the shoulders and head, this feeling of just joy. You feel optimistic about things, energetic, but at the same time, relaxed. You'll remain functional. You won't say anything stupid, and you'll remember everything that happens. You won't nod out, though you will feel a strong desire to close your eyes. Any pain you have will go away. The tea will also relieve exogenously caused depression. That's why poppy tea is served at funerals in the Middle East, he told me. It can make sadness go away. It's hard to believe that commercially available flowers could produce such effects, and at times the claims in Hogshire's book had reminded me of earlier household highs, smoking banana peels, for instance. They call me Mellow Yellow, Donovan had purred back in 1967, eating morning glory seeds, purported to be a hallucinogen, or sipping cocktails made from Coca-Cola and aspirin. Could it be there was some sort of placebo effect at work here? Hogshire showed me a scientific article from the Bulletin on Narcotics that stated plainly that commercially sold dried poppies did indeed contain opiates in significant quantities. He also pointed out that it was possible to become addicted to poppy tea. In his book, he says, Opium withdrawal hurts, but the pain will end, usually within three to five days. Those are indeed hard days for the kicking addict, but it is no worse than a nasty case of the flu. This certainly didn't sound like the effects of a placebo. If Hogshire was right, then opium was hidden in plain sight in America, which certainly would explain why the government would take an interest in the author of Opium for the Masses. He, in his small press book, had punctured a set of myths that have served the government well since 1942, when Congress decided that the best way to control opiates was to ban domestic cultivation of papaverse omniferum and force pharmaceutical companies to import opium, which they used to produce morphine and other opiates, from a handful of designated Asian countries. Since then, the perception has taken hold that this legislative stricture is actually a botanical one, that opium will grow only in these places. The other myth Hogshire had exploded is that the only way to extract opiates from opium poppies is by slitting their heads in the field, a complex and time-consuming process that, I heard over and over again from law enforcement officials and gardeners alike, made the domestic production of opium impractical. The durability of these myths has obliterated knowledge about opium that was common as recently as a century ago, when opium was still a popular non-prescription remedy and opium poppies an important domestic crop. As late as 1915, pamphlets issued by the U.S. Department of Agriculture were still mentioning opium poppies as a good cash crop for northern farmers. A few decades before, the Shakers were growing opium commercially in upstate New York. 
Well into this century, Russian, Greek, and Arab immigrants in America have used poppyhead tea as a mild sedative and a remedy for headaches, muscle pain, cough, and diarrhea. During the Civil War, gardeners in the South were encouraged to plant opium for the war effort in order to ensure a supply of painkillers for the Confederate Army. The descendants of these poppies are thriving to this day in southern gardens, but not the knowledge of their provenance or powers. What Hogshire has done is to excavate this vernacular knowledge and then publish it to the world in how-to form with recipes. As far as I can tell, the knowledge in his book hasn't seeped too far into the drug culture. Opium for the Masses has sold between eight and 10,000 copies, and I turned up no evidence of widespread tea brewing in drug circles. Yet I was curious to know just how far knowledge about his knowledge had spread in law enforcement circles. As Hogshire and I strolled the few blocks up 6th Avenue to the Flower District, he told me that since the book's publication in 1994, the price of dried poppies had doubled and the DEA had launched a quiet investigation into the domestic poppy trade. Agents had paid visits to dried flower vendors, as well as to the American Association for the Dried and Preserved Floral Industry, a trade group based in Westport, Connecticut. All this sounded to me like either boastfulness or paranoia. Until, that is, we got to the flower district. Manhattan's flower district is modest, a picturesque couple of blocks of Lower 6th Avenue, where a few dozen dried and cut flower wholesalers have their showrooms at street level. As a pedestrian reaches 27th Street, what had been a particularly dreary stretch of Manhattan suddenly erupts into greenery and bloom. Buckets of dried lotus heads and hydrangeas line the storefronts, gardenias in hanging baskets perfume the air, and clusters of potted ficus trees briefly transform the grubby sidewalk into a fair copy of a garden path. On 28th Street, we stopped in a narrow, cluttered shop that specializes in dried flowers. Hogshire surveyed a long wall of cubbies stuffed with unlabeled bunches of dried flowers, yarrow, lotus, hydrangeas, peonies, and roses in a dozen different hues, until he spotted the poppies, four different grades, their seed pods ranging in size from marbles to tennis balls, most of them in bunches of ten wrapped in cellophane. The smallest ones still wore a green tint and had a few crunchy leaves wrapped around their stems. The larger poppy heads were buff-colored and strikingly sculptural. They reminded me of a botanical photograph by Karl Blausfeld, the early 20th century German photographer, whose portraits of stems and buds and flowers make them look as if they'd been cast in iron. Hogshire asked the woman at the register if she'd had any problem lately obtaining poppies. She shrugged. No problems. How many you need? I took a bunch for $10. I felt weirdly self-conscious about my purchase, and the plastic sack she offered me was too short for the long stems. So before we stepped back out onto the street, I turned the bunch head down in the bag. We heard a very different story across the street at Bill's Flowers. Bill told us he couldn't get poppies anymore. According to his supplier, the DEA, or the USDA, he wasn't sure, had banned imports a few months before. He said because kids were smoking the seeds or something. The supplier had told him it was okay to sell whatever inventory he had left, but that there'd be no more poppies after that. Bill's story was my first indication that the federal authorities were, as Hogshire had claimed, doing something about the poppy trade, though it would take me several more weeks to figure out exactly what that something was. 
Before the morning was over, Hogshire invited me up to his room. The day was getting hot and he wanted to change his shirt. Most nights since his eviction, he'd spent in the apartments of friends, far from home. Tomorrow, he expected to be staying somewhere else. I'd asked him earlier why he hadn't stayed to face the charges in Seattle. I would go back in a second if I thought they were going to fight fair, he said, if I could be sure they wouldn't manufacture evidence or slap me back in jail at my arraignment. But the fact that they wouldn't just drop this thing after the first charge was thrown out shows me they're being vindictive. By February, Hogshire had had a change of heart. He said that he'd retained a new lawyer and that he was planning to go back to Seattle to face the charges against him. I sat on the bed while Hogshire changed his shirt. Looking around the cramped room, I could see he was traveling light. With little more than a change of clothes, his laptop computer, some books, a stack of articles about poppies, and a sheaf of legal papers about his case. I wondered what it would be like to slip underground, not to be able to go home, not to have your stuff around, not even to know exactly where you would be spending the next night, week, month. Chapter 6 Easy as it may have been to distance myself from Hogshire's underground existence, riding home on the commuter train, I found myself wondering just how much circumstantial distance really stood between Jim Hogshire and me. It was less than meets the eye and far too little for comfort. I had poppies growing in my garden, after all, and I was preparing an article that would not only acknowledge that fact, but would also reprise the very information that had gotten Hogshire into so much hot water. With what you published, the officer had asked Hogshire as they hauled him off to jail, weren't you expecting this? So what exactly set us apart? For one thing, my life wasn't lived as close to society's margins as Jim's appeared to be. For another, I was writing for a national magazine rather than for the fringe press. And this, I didn't associate with people like Bob Black. I clung to these distinctions in the weeks that followed as I made a concerted effort to learn just how strongly the DEA really felt about poppies, whether, as Hogshire had suggested, the government had launched an investigation and crackdown on domestic opium growing. My curiosity on this point was journalistic, but also somewhat more self-interested and urgent than that. For by discovering what the DEA was up to, I hoped to learn whether the paranoid fantasies gnawing at me had any basis in reality. I needed to know whether I should be getting rid of my poppies as quickly as possible, or whether I could safely let them ripen and then perhaps experiment with poppy tea. I started checking out Hogshire's leads. At the American Association for the Dried and Preserved Floral Industry, Beth Sherman confirmed that a DEA agent by the name of Larry Snyder had indeed paid the group a visit in 1995. She told me, he asked us to put an article in our newsletter advising people not to carry this certain kind of poppy. The poppy had always been illegal, the agent had explained to them, but, quote, prior to this, they didn't enforce it. They were trying to correct something that had gotten out of hand, but they were trying to do it in a low-key way, end quote. The association agreed to publish an article supplied by the DEA informing their membership that it was illegal to possess or sell Papaverse Omniferum. Hogshire had told me that a Seattle-area flower shop called Nature's Arts, Inc. had also been contacted by the DEA. I got in touch with Don Jackson, the shop's owner. 
Jackson, who had been in the dried flower business for 45 years, told me that a local DEA agent named Joel Wong had visited his shop in March of 1993. The agent had told Jackson that he was investigating poppies and wanted to know what kind his store carried and where they came from. He took away several poppies and had them tested, Jackson said. A few weeks later, he told me that they were of the opium type and that someone could get high on it, but he didn't say I had to stop selling them. Since then, Jackson had heard rumors of a crackdown and said that he knew of several big domestic growers who had stopped planting poppies for fear of having their crops confiscated. Jackson was concerned about the disappearance of somniferum from the trade. We don't have anything to replace it with, he explained. That seed pod is so nice and big and round. It's just what people are looking for as a focal point in an arrangement. When I tried to get in touch with Joel Wong, I learned that he'd recently retired. Another agent in his office took my call, but insisted at the end of a 15-minute chat that I not quote him by name. Under the circumstances, I think I'll oblige. Agent Anonymous seemed to be unaware of his predecessor's investigation into dried poppies, so I changed the subject to poppy growing. It's illegal to grow opium poppies, the agent said, but frankly, I don't see it becoming a big problem, only because it's so labor-intensive to harvest the opium. You've got to go out there early in the morning and slit the pods, then wait until the gum oozes out, and then you have to scrape it off pod by pod. Why would you do all this when you can go down to First and Pike and score some black tar? Black tar is a cheap form of heroin from Mexico. I say let them at it. It's not going to be a big problem. It was a friendly enough chat, so I figured I'd ask the agent what advice he'd give a gardener of my acquaintance who had opium poppies growing in his garden. I'd tell him it's illegal and he's running a risk of getting his front door kicked. But I've got priorities. If he's a University of Washington botanist who's growing poppies, he's not going to have his door kicked. On the other hand, if this professor's scoring the pods, his door most likely will be kicked. It's on a case-by-case basis. He continued, But I would also tell him, why grow this illegal plant when there are so many other beautiful plants you can grow? That would be my advice. Why grow the opium when you can put your energy into bonsai plants or orchids, which are so much more challenging? Because how many people can grow an orchid? I had told him I was a garden writer, and he seemed eager to talk about orchid growing, his hobby. He mentioned he kept an orchid on his desk. But when I pressed him about my hypothetical opium poppy grower, he turned distinctly less amiable. What if this poppy grower is also publishing articles about how to make poppy tea, I asked him. Then his door is going to be kicked because he's trying to promote something that's illegal. It was a chilling conversation. I was reminded of something Hogshire had said about the laws governing opium poppies. He had told me, It's as if they had on the books a 20 miles per hour speed limit that was never posted, never enforced, never even talked about. There's no way for you to know that this is the law. Then they pick someone out and say, hey, you were going 50. Don't you know the speed limit is 20? You broke the law. You're going to jail. But nobody else is being stopped, you say. That doesn't matter. This is the law, and we have the discretion. The fact that your car is covered with political bumper stickers that we don't like has nothing to do with it. This isn't about free speech. Whatever else they may be, the drug laws are a powerful weapon in the hands of an agent anonymous, or for that matter, a Bob Black. With the speed limit set so low, all it takes is an angry government agent or a citizen informant to get you pulled over to get your door kicked.
It was soon after my conversation with Agent Anonymous that I had my second opium dream. July was nearly over, and I'd come down with a case of Lyme disease, so my nights were already frightful enough, a roller coaster of fevers and bone-rattling chills. In the dream, I awake to find faces pressed against the windows of my bedroom, five panes filled with five round white heads, slightly elfin, slightly Slavic-looking. It's a raid, I realize. They're looking for poppies. All night long, they search my house, and then at daybreak, they begin to scour my vegetable garden. They're examining every inch of soil. They're even dusting the leaves of my cabbages for fingerprints. My tormentors are peculiarly non-menacing, and in this dream, I've already pulled out my poppies, so I should have nothing to worry about. Even so, I'm trying as hard as I can to watch all five of them at once, just to make sure they don't plant anything. But no matter which way I move, one of them is always blocking my view of the others. I move this way, then that, and the frustration of not being able to see what they're up to builds until I think I'm going to explode. And then all of a sudden, I spot a single, gorgeous, lavender poppy in full bloom on the other side of the garden fence, an escapee. Will they notice it? I wake before I find out, the bedclothes drenched with perspiration. Maybe the Lyme disease explains the nightmare. I'd had intense fevered dreams all that week, but it could also have been the call I received from Jim Hogshire earlier that day. Announcing that he was thinking of coming up to my place, he said, to help out with the harvest. By comparison, the dream was a walk in the park, for here was a genuine nightmare. I was sick with a 103-degree fever, my joints so stiff I could scarcely turn my head, and a man who was wanted by the police and had no place to live was proposing to come over to help me harvest a crop that could land me in jail. My mind careened as I considered precisely how terrible an idea this was. Did I really want someone who might well, at some point, come under intense pressure from the police? All right, Hogshire, who else can you finger? To see my garden? And once he had unpacked, how was I ever going to get my house guest to leave? The cable guy was in the movie theaters that week. This is, I know, terribly unfair to Jim Hogshire, who strikes me as a decent enough fellow, but I kept thinking about something disturbing that he told me. That after his eviction, he had given some serious thought to turning in his landlady for growing opium poppies. I was also flashing on the figure of Bob Black, the house guest from hell. I rifled my brain for a polite and halfway credible excuse, but this was a summit that social etiquette had not yet scaled. In the end, I merely spluttered something pathetic about being too sick to think about having people over right now and needing to check with my wife before extending any invitations. I also told Hawkshire that I wasn't sure whether I was ever going to harvest, which was true. I didn't yet have a good enough fix on the DEA's intentions regarding poppies and therefore on the risk harvesting might entail. It appeared that the DEA was up to something, but what exactly? I knew I should contact the DEA's Washington, D.C. headquarters, but knowing how opaque its agents can be and being more than a little nervous about alerting them to my existence and interests while my plants were still in the ground, I decided it might be best first to find out as much as I could about the scope of their domestic poppy campaign. I called Shepard Ogden at Cook's, one of the seed companies that sells opium poppies. He'd heard rumors that the DEA had sent letters to seed companies requesting that they stop selling somniferum, though he hadn't received one himself. Ogden reiterated what I already knew, that the sale of seeds is perfectly legal. Beyond that, he was uncertain. 
He suggested I check with the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, a trade group in Oberlin, Ohio. As it turned out, the president of the association, a Northern California flower grower named Will Fulton, had just drafted a column for the latest issue of the association's newsletter alerting members to the DEA letter, which had been received by, quote, one of our most reputable seed companies, end quote. The column quoted the letter's first paragraph. It has come to the attention of the United States Department of Justice Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA, that in certain parts of the United States, the opium poppy, Papaver somniferum L, is being cultivated for culinary and horticultural purposes. The cultivation of opium poppy in the United States is illegal, as is the possession of poppy straw, all parts of the harvested opium poppy except the seeds. Certain seed companies have been identified as selling opium poppy seeds, some with instruction for cultivation printed on the retail packages. Before this situation adds to the drug abuse epidemic, DEA is requesting your assistance in curbing such activity. Judging by the spirited polemic that followed, Will Fulton is the Tom Paine of the cut flower world. Wait a minute, he wrote. Where's the mens rea or criminal intent here? Imagine yourself in the interrogation room, he asked his members. So, you admit that you intended to cultivate for culinary or horticultural purposes. Why is it illegal to plant a seed, he went on, a gift from nature, when your only intention is to grow it for its physical beauty, yet at the same time, it is perfectly legal to purchase an AK-47 when your only intention is gopher control? True, the Founding Fathers had provided for a specific right to bear arms, he said, but the only reason they'd had nothing to say, quote, about the right to plant seeds was because it never would have occurred to them that any state might care to abridge that right. After all, they were writing on hemp paper, end quote. When I reached Fulton at his flower farm in Northern California, he identified the recipient of the DEA letter as Thompson & Morgan, a venerable British-owned company with offices in New Jersey. Lisa Crowning, the chief horticulturalist at Thompson & Morgan, confirmed having received the letter, which she regarded as intimidating and worrisome. Sent by registered mail in late June, the letter was signed by Larry Snyder, Chief International Drug Unit the same man who'd paid a visit to the American Association for the Dried and Preserved Floral Industry. Thompson and Morgan hadn't yet made a final decision on the DEA's request, but Crowning hoped the firm would continue to offer opium poppies, which she told me she grows in her own garden. Crowning had telephoned Larry Snyder, hoping that there might be, quote, some halfway measure, end quote, that would satisfy the DEA. She mentioned putting a warning in the catalog or removing growing instructions from the packets, but found him completely inflexible. She told me, we don't want to offend the DEA, but we feel we are completely within our rights to sell these seeds. The full text of Snyder's letter to Thompson and Morgan brought the alarming news that the DEA was indeed arresting poppy growers. It alluded to, quote, a recent DEA drug seizure involving a significant quantity of poppy plants, many with scored seed pods, that revealed a supply of poppy seeds noting the date of the shipment and the name and address of your company as the supplier. You should be aware that supplying these seeds for cultivation purposes may be considered illegal, end quote. After that thinly veiled threat, Snyder called for a, quote, voluntary secession of the sale of Papaver somniferum L, end quote. 
By October, the horticultural grapevine was abuzz with poppy talk and what sounded to me like rumors of war. From Beth Benjamin at Shepherd's Garden Seeds, I learned that the police had seized poppies from a public garden project for the homeless that the firm had backed in Santa Cruz. From Will Fulton, I learned about a grower in Northern California who had had his crop plowed under by the DEA. From the American Seed Trade Association, ASTA, I learned that the DEA, in the person of Larry Snyder, had formally requested that the group call for a voluntary ban on sales of poppy seeds. The association had complied, a staffer told me, as a civic duty type of thing. From Katie Sluter, an importer of dried flowers based in North Carolina, I learned that a container load of poppies that she had ordered from a grower in Holland had been turned back by U.S. Customs. A crackdown was underway, but it was an oddly muffled crackdown. Rather than stage a few well-publicized raids, the DEA seemed to be pursuing a far more subtle strategy. It was working within the industry, in some cases by intimidating companies engaged in legitimate trade, to staunch supplies of both seeds and dried flowers without making any noise in public, much less publicizing exactly what people might be doing with poppies. The subtle hand behind these efforts apparently belonged to Larry Snyder, and I decided the time had come for me to talk to him. When I spotted his phone number printed in Asta's newsletter, I felt as though I had stumbled upon the Wizard of Oz's direct line. After I introduced myself as a garden writer, Snyder agreed to an interview. I began by asking his advice on the poppies growing in my garden. He came right to the point. My advice is not to grow them, he said. It is a violation of federal law. I would get rid of them. He added that, We're not going into grandma's garden and taking samples of her poppies, and confirmed that a gardener had to be growing peace omniferum with knowledge and intent before the deed became a crime. Perhaps trying to be helpful, Snyder pointed out that there are 1,200 other species of poppies I could be growing instead, including, quote, Roeus and Giganteum and a jillion others, end quote. Giganteum, wasn't that the one Wayne Winterrode had said was just a strain of somniferum? I asked him to describe it. He said, it's got an even bigger capsule than somniferum. I've got one of them sitting right here on my desk. Snyder acknowledged that the DEA had done nothing to enforce the laws against poppy growing until recently after receiving, quote, some information coming in out of the Northwest in California that people were making a tea from dried and fresh poppies, end quote. Was he familiar with a book called Opium for the Masses? After what felt to me like an uncomfortably long pause, he said simply, we see most of the publications. I might be mistaken, but it was my impression that Snyder grew suddenly curt with me at this point in our conversation. He refused to say anything more about the seizure mentioned in his letter to the seed companies on the ground that it was still an active case. When I wondered on what authority the DEA could stop seed companies from selling legal seeds, he cut me off. If they sell for cultivation purposes, he said, that is illegal. It was hard to see what other reason a seed company would have for selling seeds. Then I asked Larry Snyder if he worried that his efforts might alert people to just how easy it is to obtain opiates in this country. He said, There's always a risk that as more people become aware, some people will try it. It's kind of like announcing that the bank leaves the vault open at 9 o'clock in the morning. Is that going to induce someone to rob the bank? Draw your own conclusions. Chapter 7 
The conclusion I drew was that the DEA was indeed trying to implement a quiet crackdown, attempting to shut down supplies of poppies, fresh as well as dried, without calling attention to the fact that, as I had discovered with Jim Hogshire's help, they are commonly available and easily converted into a narcotic. What was in the bank vault that Snyder alluded to was this very knowledge, still shut up behind a high wall of misinformation and myth. The DEA appears to be intent on keeping it there, making sure that domestic opium disappears before the knowledge gets out that it is, in fact, hidden in plain sight. The government would seem to be walking a torturously narrow path here, attempting to send one message to those who are in the know and a very different one to those who are not. This delicate balancing act was on full display in the seizure that Larry Snyder wouldn't discuss with me. I'm fairly sure that I now know what bus Snyder was talking about or not talking about. On June 11th, a few weeks before my own poppies had bloomed, the DEA and local law enforcement agents in Spalding County, Georgia, raided the garden of Rodney Allen Moore, a 31-year-old unemployed man, and his wife, Cherie. Agents seized 258 poppy plants, many of them with their seed capsules scored, two dozen marijuana seedlings, and several ounces of bagged marijuana. A search of the trailer in which the Moors live turned up records indicating that the poppy seeds had been ordered from Thompson and Morgan and two other firms, as well as a copy of Opium for the Masses. Moore was charged with manufacturing morphine and possession of marijuana. Although he had no prior arrest record, he was, and as of February, is still being held on $100,000 bail. Note, Moore was indicted by a grand jury on several counts, including manufacturing morphine and possession of a firearm during the commission of a crime. He pled guilty to reduce charges and received a sentence of 10 years, of which he served two and a half years and was ordered to pay a fine of $57,000. It does not appear that Moore's bust was part of any organized crackdown on people who grow poppies. Acting on an anonymous tip, agents had come looking for a plantation of marijuana and apparently stumbled upon the poppies. But the way the raid was handled is, I think, indicative of the government's two-pronged strategy with respect to domestic opium. While with one hand, the DEA took advantage of the bust to track down and apply pressure to the companies that had legally sold Rodney Allen Moore his poppy seeds, with the other, it sought to spread a thick cloud of disinformation about poppies before the public. Agents to check on how poppies entered the country, read the page one headline in the Griffin Daily News, alongside a photo of one of Moore's scored poppy heads. The article made no mention of the well-known seed catalogs found in Moore's trailer, which of course proved that his poppies had not entered the country at all. Instead, it quoted Vincent Morgano, a DEA agent, claiming that the growing of opium poppies in this country was unheard of. Quote, in my 25 years with the agency, I have never seen it grown in the United States, end quote. Clarence Cox, head of the Griffin Spalding Narcotics Task Force, assured the press that the confiscated poppies are not the same kind that are commonly grown in American flower gardens. Spalding County Sheriff Richard Cantrell said that each of the 258 seed pods seized in the raid could, if properly harvested and processed, yield up to a kilo of heroin apiece. Talk about alchemy. Bill Maloney, also with the DEA, explained to a reporter that extracting narcotics from the pods entailed a very complicated and dangerous procedure. 
He said, I don't even think someone with a PhD could do it. He also said that opium poppies were extremely rare in the southeastern United States. The climate has to be just right, he explained. The temperatures have to be warm, and you have to have the right amount of water. All these assertions I read in the Griffin Daily News, which had taken them on faith. And why not? What reason would government officials have to lie about horticulture? Yet several of these statements I had already disproved in my own garden. I knew for a matter of fact that the poppies in question, Papaverse somniferum, are indeed the same kind commonly grown in American gardens, and that growing them anywhere in the country is not by any stretch a horticultural challenge. And although I did not yet have direct knowledge that these poppies could be made into a narcotic tea, James Duke, a botanist I contacted at the United States Department of Agriculture, had told me that ordinary garden-variety opium poppies did contain morphine and codeine and that these alkaloids could easily and effectively be extracted from fresh or dried seed pods by infusing them in hot water, by making a tea. Duke had said to me, so you can see why they might be concerned and why they might be inclined to lie. If opium is so easy to grow, and opium tea so easy to make, the best, perhaps the only, way for the government to stop people from growing and making their own is to convince them that it can't be done. I had every reason to believe that James Duke and Jim Hogshire were right, and to doubt the statements of the government agents in Georgia. But it still seemed to me that in light of the ever-thickening mist of myths and disinformation swirling around the subject of poppies, the best way to nail down the last piece of poppy knowledge would be to perform a simple experiment on the flowers in my garden. I understood by now that the laws governing poppy cultivation had already expelled me from the country of the law-abiding, indeed had done so even before I knew it had happened. Since those laws drew no distinction between growing poppies and making poppy tea, there seemed to be no good reason not to take the steps needed to satisfy my curiosity. At this point in the story, I need to break in to explain why the pages that follow, recounting my simple experiment, were cut from the original article on the advice of counsel and then lost for 24 years. After I submitted the manuscript to Harper's Magazine in the late fall of 1996, and while the editing and fact-checking were underway, I mentioned to my editor that we should probably get a lawyer to read the draft in view of the fact that the government had clearly taken an interest in the activities I was describing, some of which were potentially illegal. John R. Rick MacArthur, the publisher of Harper's, agreed and sent the manuscript to a prominent criminal defense lawyer he happened to know. The lawyer practiced in Bridgeport, Connecticut, a city with a long-standing reputation for corruption, organized crime, and illicit drugs. Plenty of work for the criminal bar. On a clear winter afternoon, the attorney and his young associate drove up to our home in Cornwall to brief Judith and me on their legal opinion of the piece. It was a weekday, and our four-year-old was at daycare. We served the lawyers lunch before moving into the living room to hear their counsel. I can remember thinking just how odd it felt to have two criminal defense lawyers in our house here on business. Though the senior lawyer spoke in the preternaturally calm tones of his profession, what he had to say terrified us both. If he was right, and I had no reason to doubt him, I was in far more serious legal jeopardy than I had imagined. Throughout the whole experiment, my worst-case scenario, 
inspired largely by Jim Hogshire's nightmare, had been the midnight visit from the police, the SWAT team armed with a search warrant tearing up my house and garden while my family and I looked on helplessly. I had always assumed, though, that the government would need some physical evidence, surely the poppies themselves, or at least an eyewitness, some sort of independent corroboration of the fact that I had grown poppies before it could bring charges against me. But after two decades of the war against drugs, the power of the government to move against its citizens has grown even greater than many of us realize. Apparently, a search warrant was the least of my worries. It is at least conceivable that a federal prosecutor could charge me with manufacturing a Schedule II controlled substance with little more evidence than the contents of the article I proposed to publish, which could be admitted into evidence as a confession. The confession could be corroborated with my seed orders or the felonious poppies that would come up on their own in my garden the next spring, since my poppies had already spread their seed. The penalty? Up to 20 years in prison and a million-dollar fine, depending on the quantity of the drug that I was manufacturing. If no poppies were found on the property, under the federal guidelines, the government could estimate the amount that could be grown in a garden the size of mine and then charge me for growing that. The lawyer also shared this even more disturbing fact. Under federal asset forfeiture laws amended by Congress in 1984 and since upheld by the Supreme Court, the government could seize my house and land and evict us from our home without convicting me of any crime, indeed, without so much as charging me with one. He explained that my house and garden can be convicted of the crime of manufacturing opium regardless of whether I am ever charged, let alone convicted of that offense. Under the civil forfeiture statute, the standard of proof is much lower than in a criminal prosecution. The government need only demonstrate a preponderance of the evidence that my property was involved in a violation of the drug laws in order to confiscate it. What would it take to establish that preponderance? In the opinion of the lawyer seated across from me in our living room, nothing more than the article I was planning to publish. As I listened to this attorney calmly explain how the act of publishing this story could wreck our lives, I could see that there were two narratives at war here. In my version of the story, it would be no big deal to harvest a couple of seed pods from my garden, crush and steep them in a cup of hot water, and taste the resultant tea, which I thought of as a fairly mild herbal remedy. But that's my description. The lawyer was telling me that I had to weigh, if not accede to, the government's very different description of those same acts. That making poppy tea is manufacturing narcotics. That printing its recipe and describing its effects in any but the most terrific terms would be promoting drug abuse. The decision whether to prosecute a person turns not only on what crimes he may or may not have committed, but also on what kind of story a prosecutor can tell a jury about him. And according to the lawyer, the government's version of the story might well prevail over mine. My situation was made worse by the fact that there was no way to disguise either where or when the crime I would be confessing to in print took place. The events are obviously set in my house and garden, thereby establishing the jurisdiction and target asset for forfeiture, and the exact time the crime took place can easily be ascertained by dating events in the narrative, such as Hogshire's arrest, making it impossible for me to claim that the statute of limitations had passed. From an evidentiary point of view, my article was a bonfire of self-incrimination. 
The decision whether to proceed or not was mine, the lawyer said in concluding, but he could not, as my attorney, advise publication. I was flabbergasted. Sitting in my own living room on my familiar sofa, I suddenly felt as though I'd metamorphosed into another kind of being, a defendant, and one whose goose was well and truly cooked. The decision before me seemed obvious. I'd be a fool to jeopardize not only my freedom but our home by publishing an article. It wasn't just any article, however. I had spent the better part of a year working on it, and as a freelance writer was counting on the fee. But even before the lawyers packed up their briefcases and headed back to Bridgeport, I could see all that effort and income swirling down the drain of my stupidity. What had I been thinking? But the story didn't end there, obviously, since I did ultimately publish the piece, or at least most of it. When word of the lawyer's advice and my reaction to it reached the publisher, Rick MacArthur, he was outraged. It's important to understand that Rick is not your typical magazine publisher, one with an eye fixed on the bottom line and a genetic aversion to litigation. Rick is fierce in his devotion to press freedom and has a tropism bending him toward, rather than away from, the bright light of controversy. The recommendation of his lawyer friend to suppress a piece of journalism for any reason was an affront to his very being. Rick's immediate response? Find a new lawyer. This time, instead of a criminal defense lawyer, Rick hired a First Amendment lawyer, one of the most prominent in New York City. Victor Kovner has represented numerous well-known authors, filmmakers, and media outlets, often defending them from government efforts to suppress their work. Victor read the same draft the Bridgeport lawyer had read, but came to the opposite conclusion. I don't recall his exact words, but what I heard was, this piece must be published for the good of the republic. He deemed it unlikely that the government would come after a magazine as well-known and venerable as Harper's. In his view, the piece should be read not as a confession to a crime, but rather as a political commentary on the drug war, the precise type of speech the First Amendment exists to protect. Together, Kovner and MacArthur made me feel that my concerns for my liberty, for my home, were parochial when set against the public interest at stake. If anything, they seemed eager for a fight. What to do? I was badly torn. I very much wanted to publish a piece I was proud of and, no small matter, get paid for it. Maybe the Connecticut lawyer was overreacting and failing to weigh the political calculation that the government would be foolish to go after us. Shouldn't I, as a journalist, look beyond my own safety and give at least some weight to the First Amendment issues hanging in the balance here? I pressed Rick to see how far he and the magazine would go to defend me in the event something happened. In reply, he had Kovner draft a letter of agreement, which stands as one of the most unusual contracts ever given to any writer by a publisher. If anything happened to me as a result of the publication of the article, Harper's committed to, quote, defend, indemnify you, and hold you harmless from and against any and all costs, expenses, and losses of any kind, end quote. This included not only paying for my defense and promising not to settle a case without my consent, but reimbursing me for the time spent defending myself. In the event I lost a case and was incarcerated, Harper's agreed to pay a salary to Judith until my release, as well as any fines or penalties. And if the government should seize our house and land, Harper's committed to buying us a comparable new home. The agreement was reassuring, but it was also frightening to read all these contingencies could actually happen. 
I asked Kovner whether there was anything I could do to protect myself if, in fact, I was willing to publish. He suggested that there were two passages in the piece that were most likely to antagonize the government, and if I could live without them, it might reduce the likelihood of prosecution. As I recall, he cited United States versus Progressive Inc., a 1979 case in which the government had sought to stop the Progressive magazine from publishing an article containing instructions for making a hydrogen bomb, even though the instructions were based entirely on publicly available information. By publishing a recipe for making poppy tea and then describing its effects in generally positive terms, I would be seen as taunting the government as well as educating would-be opium growers. In Kovner's judgment, this increased the likelihood that the government would feel compelled to take some kind of action. Removing those pages would minimize that risk, he felt, since the article would then, in effect, be serving the DEA's purpose, intimidating people like me from divulging the recipe for poppy tea and describing its effects. Kovner also felt that a defendant who hadn't used the drug in question would be more sympathetic in the eyes of a jury. But his bottom line was that if I was willing to cut the offending pages, I could reduce my exposure to negligible. So that is what, after consulting with Judith and agonizing for several days, I decided to do. I cut the recipe and trip report, and before the magazine went to print, made sure to get those passages, along with any other potential evidence, off the property and my computer. But before erasing it from my hard drive, I copied the unexpurgated version of the piece to a floppy disk and gave it to my brother-in-law, an attorney, for safekeeping. Why? I couldn't bear to destroy it. Maybe someday, I thought, after the drug war ended or the statute of limitation had passed, I would do something with it. Here are those missing passages, followed by the final section of the piece as it appeared in 1997. Chapter 8 It was late fall when I finally harvested my poppies. By now, they had dried on their stalks, forming crinkled brown seed pods the size of walnuts. According to James Duke, the retired USDA researcher I had spoken to, I had passed up a pharmacological opportunity by failing to harvest the seed pods while still fresh and full of sap or opium. Duke suggested that alcohol would make a better solvent than hot water for extracting alkaloids from poppies, which made sense. Laudanum is a name for just such a tincture of opium. You can get the equivalent of a shot of heroin from a good green pod dissolved in a glass of vodka, Duke told me. I wondered why Hogshire's recipes focused on poppy tea to the exclusion of alcohol-based preparations, and then recalled something he told me. Hogshire was a Muslim and so didn't drink alcohol. Examining the pods in my garden, I could see that the tiny portals circling the anther at the top of each capsule had opened, releasing the poppy seeds to the wind. The seed portals looked exactly like the little observation windows circling the crown of the Statue of Liberty. By now, the seeds had probably been dispersed all over my garden and would come up on their own willy-nilly next spring. If I didn't want opium poppies next season, I would have to sedulously weed every one of these volunteers. I snapped a half-dozen of the pods off their stalks and brought them into the kitchen. Though many of their seeds had been dispersed, many more remained, and the pods made a rattling sound whenever they moved. Following Hogshire's recipe, I shook out the rest of the seeds. There were hundreds in each pod, ranging in color from beige to lavender to black, and crushed the pods in my fist. 
The shards I stuffed into the bowl of a coffee grinder, which in a few seconds noisily reduced them to a fine, done powder. I boiled a kettle of water and poured it over the dried tea in a mug, stirred the chestnut-colored mixture, and let it steep. The aroma was not at all unpleasant. It smelled of hay, not unlike a Lapsang Souchong tea. The whole procedure was so straightforward, so domestic in its particulars, that it felt no more controversial than making pesto or lemon balm tea, two equally simple harvest operations I'd performed that week. I certainly didn't feel the lack of a Ph.D. After 15 minutes, I poured the tea through a strainer, in the well of which it deposited a viscous brown slurry. With the back of a tablespoon, I mashed this material against the mesh of the strainer, pushing through the last few ounces of liquid. The tea was ready to drink. Poppy tea tastes truly awful. It was nearly as bitter as raw opium, and after the novelty of the flavor wore off, slightly nauseating. I had asked Jim Duke why he thought poppies produced opium in the first place. What, in other words, was the evolutionary point? Alkaloids taste bad, he pointed out. It's conceivable that plants produce them as a defense against pests. No animal's going to bother a plant that tastes that bad, he said. So the plant with the worst taste is going to produce the most offspring. It was a job getting a cup of the stuff down. The tea not only tasted terrible, but it was oddly filling, too, and very soon made me queasy, a sensation much like a mild seasickness. I wondered if it was even possible to overdose on poppy tea. It seemed to me your stomach would rebel long before a significant amount could be ingested. Within ten minutes or so, I began to feel different. Not dramatically different, not high, but not exactly the same self I was ten minutes before, either. Remembering what Jim Hawkshire had told me about the tea's analgesic properties, I conducted an inventory of my everyday aches and pains and physical annoyances, a stiffness in the neck I'd woken with, the nasal and throat irritations of a particularly bad hay fever season, the usual dull pain in my knuckles after too many hours at the computer keyboard, and found that all these symptoms had, if not quite disappeared, then dropped beneath the threshold of my attention. They simply didn't matter. Then I decided it would be a good idea to inventory my mood and concluded that it was very good indeed. Nothing I would describe as euphoric, but I was suffused body and mind with a distinct feeling of well-being. The words warm and aqueous appear in my notes. I'm not sure whether it was the mode of self-study I had logged onto, but the mental stance of just standing slightly apart from myself, coolly appraising my sensations and moods, suddenly seemed like the most natural thing in the world. I felt as though I was almost, but not quite, having an experience in the third person. Hogshire had said that the tea can make sadness go away, and now I understood why he had employed that particular phrasing. For the poppy tea didn't seem to add anything new to consciousness in the way that smoking marijuana can produce novel and unexpected sensations and emotions. By comparison, the tea seemed to subtract things, anxiety, melancholy, worry, grief. Like the opiate it is or consists of, poppy tea is a painkiller in every sense. In my notes, I wrote, definitely lightens the existential load. Fully expecting to be rendered useless by the tea, I have always been highly susceptible to drugs and opiates are commonly thought to be soporific, I had chosen an afternoon for my experiment on which there was little I needed to get done. 
And for the first hour, as I sat there at my desk assessing its effects, I did feel a powerful urge to close my eyes. Not from any drowsiness, but from a radical and by no means unpleasant sense of passivity. I just didn't need to have all that visual information. Thank you very much. My senses were functioning normally, yet I didn't particularly feel like acting on their data. At one point, I remember feeling chilled, but couldn't be bothered to close a window or put on a sweater. I'll just sit here a while longer if that's okay. I wrote somewhat cryptically, like sitting out on the front porch of one's consciousness, watching the world go by. But I found I could think clearly as long as I thought about one thing at a time. De Quincey had said he found reading a congenial activity while eating opium, and for a while I read a book with perfect concentration. But during the second hour, I noticed I was actually feeling energetic, even purposeful. Now I felt like stepping down from porch consciousness and heading out into the garden to take care of a few chores. This was to be, I had decided beforehand, a one-time experiment, and I knew I had to rid my garden of poppies, the sooner the better. So I set to work pulling up the withered stalks. But I was unsure exactly what to do with this crop of dead flowers, this evidence. I had read that the police no longer needed a search warrant to search my garbage, another juridical fruit of the drug war, so throwing them out with the trash was out of the question. I finally decided simply to compost them. By spring, they'd be indistinguishable from the decomposing sunflower heads, broccoli plants, eggshells, and table scraps mounded up on the pile of compost in the corner of my vegetable garden. Chapter 9 as I gathered up the poppy stalks, I reflected on the season's unusual harvest. Pride is a common enough emotion among gardeners at this time of year, that and a continuing amazement at what it is possible to create virtually out of nothing in one's garden. I still marvel each summer at the achievement of a bourbon rose or even a beefsteak tomato, how the gardener can cause nature to yield up something so specifically attractive to the human eye or nose or taste bud. So it was with these astonishing poppies. How can it be that such an inconsequential speck of seed could yield a fruit in my garden with the power to lift pain, alter consciousness, make sadness go away? We have the scientist's explanation. The alkaloids in opium consist of complex molecules nearly identical to the molecules that our brain produces to cope with pain and reward itself with pleasure. Though it seems to me that this is one of those scientific explanations that only compounds the mystery it purports to solve. For what are the odds that a molecule produced by a flower out in the world would turn out to hold the precise key required to unlock the physiological mechanism governing the economy of pleasure and pain in my brain? There is something miraculous about such a correspondence between nature and mind, though it too must have an explanation. It might be the result of sheer molecular accident, but it seems more likely that it is the result of a little of that and then a whole lot of co-evolution. One theory holds that Papaver somniferum is a flower whose evolution has been directly influenced by the pleasure and relief from pain it happened to give a certain primate with a gift for horticulture and experiment. The flowers that gave people the most pleasure were the ones that produced the most offspring. It's not all that different from the case of the bourbon rose or the beefsteak tomato, two other plants whose evolution has been guided by the hand of human interest. There was a second astonishment I registered out there that autumn afternoon, this one somewhat darker. 
As I threw my broken stalks on the compost and turned them under with a pitchfork, I thought, what could it possibly mean to say this plant was illegal? I had started out a few months ago with a seed no more felonious than the one for a tomato. Indeed, they had arrived in the same envelope. And after planting and watering it, thinning and weeding and performing all the other ordinary acts of gardening, I had ended up with a flower that rendered its cultivator a criminal. Surely this was an alchemy no less incredible than the one that had transformed that same seed into a chemical compound with the power to alter the ratio of pleasure and pain in my brain. Yet this second transformation had no basis in nature whatsoever. It is, in fact, the result of nothing more than a particular legal taxonomy, a classification of certain substances that appear in nature into categories labeled licit and illicit. Any such taxonomy, being the product of a particular culture and history and politics, is an artificial construct. It's not difficult to imagine how it might have been very different than it is. In fact, it once was, and not so long ago. Not far from my garden stands a very old apple tree planted early in this century by the farmer who used to live here, a man named Matches, who bought this land in 1915. The tree still produces a small crop of apples each fall, but they're not very good to eat. From what I've been able to learn, the farmer grew them for the sole purpose of making hard cider, something most American farmers had done since colonial times. Indeed, until this century, hard cider was probably the most popular intoxicant, drug if you will, in this country. It shouldn't surprise us that one of the symbols of the Women's Christian Temperance Union was an axe. Prohibitionists like Carrie Nation used to call for the chopping down of apple trees, just like the one in my garden. Plants that in their eyes held some of the same menace that a marijuana plant or poppy flower holds in the eyes of, say, drug czar William Bennett. Old-timers around here tell me that Joe Matches used to make the best Applejack in town, hundred proof, I once heard. No doubt his cider was subject to abuse, and from 1920 to 1933, its manufacture was a federal crime under the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. During those years, the farmer violated a federal law every time he made a barrel of cider. It's worth noting that during the period of anti-alcohol hysteria that led to prohibition, certain forms of opium were as legal and almost as widely available in this country as alcohol is today. It is said that members of the Women's Christian Temperance Union would relax at the end of a day spent crusading against alcohol with their cherished women's tonics, preparations whose active ingredient was laudanum, opium. Such was the order of things less than a century ago. The war on drugs is, in truth, a war on some drugs, their enemy status the result of historical accident, cultural prejudice, and institutional imperative. The taxonomy on behalf of which this war is being fought would be difficult to explain to an extraterrestrial or even a farmer like Matches. Is it the quality of addictiveness that renders a substance illicit? Not in the case of tobacco, which I am free to grow in this garden. Curiously, the current campaign against tobacco dwells less on cigarettes' addictiveness than on their threat to our health. So is it toxicity that renders a substance a public menace? Well, my garden is full of plants, datura and euphorbia, castor beans, and even the leaves of my rhubarb that would sicken and possibly kill me if I ingested them. But the government trusts me to be careful. Is it then the prospect of pleasure, of recreational use, that puts a substance beyond the pale? Not in the case of alcohol. 
I can legally produce wine or hard cider or beer from my garden for my personal use, though there are regulations governing its distribution to others. So could it be a drug's mind-altering properties that make it evil? Certainly not in the case of Prozac, a drug that, much like opium, mimics chemical compounds manufactured in the brain. Arbitrary though the war on drugs may be, the battle against the poppy is surely its most eccentric front. The exact same chemical compounds in other hands, those of a pharmaceutical company, say, or a doctor, are treated as the boon to mankind they most surely are. Yet although the medical value of my poppies is widely recognized, my failure to heed what amounts to a set of regulations that only a pharmaceutical company may handle these flowers, that only a doctor may dispense their extracts, and prejudices governing their production and use makes me not just a scofflaw, but a felon. Someday we may marvel at the power we've invested in these categories, which seems all out of proportion to their artifice. Perhaps one day the government won't care if I want to make a cup of poppy tea for a migraine, no more than it presently cares if I make a cup of valerian tea, a tranquilizer made from the roots of valeriana officinalis, to help me sleep, or even if I want to make a quart of hard apple cider for the express purpose of getting drunk. After all, it wasn't such a long time ago that the fortunes of the apple and the poppy in this country were reversed. As I made sure the stalks were well interred beneath layers of compost, close enough to the heat at the center of the pile to blast them beyond recognition, I thought about how little had changed in my garden since Joe Matches tended it during Prohibition, a time we rightly regard as benighted and wrongly regard as ancient history. If anything, those of us living through the drug war live in even stranger times when certain plants themselves have been outlawed from our gardens with no regard for what one might or might not be doing with them. Prohibition never outlawed Joe Matches's apple trees, nor did it threaten this property with confiscation. It wasn't until Matches made his cider that he crossed the line. But there it was, then as now, a line through the middle of this garden. Thanks to two national crusades against certain drugs that can be easily produced in it, both he and I found a way to violate federal law without so much as stepping off the property and jeopardized our personal freedom simply by exercising it. In addition to inhabiting this particular corner of the earth, Matches and I presumably had a few other things in common. There is, for example, the desire to occasionally alter the textures of consciousness, though I wonder if that might not be universal. And then there's this, the refusal to accept that what happens in our gardens, not to mention in our houses, our bodies, and our minds, is anyone's business but our own. Fifteen years ago, when I first moved into this place, some of the crumbling outbuildings dotting the property still bore crudely lettered warnings directed, I like to think, at the dreaded revenuers and anyone else the old farmer judged a threat to his privacy, to his liberty. Keep out, went one, an angry scrawl painted in red on the side of a shed. My sentiments exactly. Epilogue You're probably wondering what happened after the article was published. I spent a few anxious weeks waiting for some shoe to drop, but either the government never saw the piece, unlikely in view of what happened to Hogshire's obscure book, or Kovner's political calculation was correct, and the government decided it had more to lose by coming after us than it stood to gain. 
If the crackdown on domestic opium production was intended to be a quiet one, aimed at stopping the activity without alerting anyone to its existence, a noisy battle with a national magazine would surely undermine that strategy. But of course, all this is speculation. Who knows what they were thinking, assuming they paid the matter any attention at all? And who knows if my act of self-censorship made the difference? I came to regret cutting the pages from the piece, though not until the fear and paranoia that gripped me that year had subsided. It takes no courage to publish the offending pages now, the statute of limitation on my crime passed years ago. No, the only problem with publishing the missing pages now was finding them. I thought I had left the pages in the custody of my brother-in-law. However, when I asked after them recently, he claimed to have returned the files to me many years ago. I had no recollection of getting them back. But when I mounted a serious search among my papers, I found, in a storage closet under the daybed in my writing studio in Cornwall, a thick old-school legal folder containing some faxed galleys of the piece, some legal memos, drafts of the Harper's indemnification letter, and a single purple floppy, a zip drive. I was hopeful this might be it, but I had no machine that could read the ancient and obsolete disk. After asking around, I heard about a computer consultant in a neighboring town named David Mafucci, by reputation a wizard at this sort of thing. When I reached Dave by phone, he said that he had a basement full of old media and might have something that could read my disk, provided it hadn't deteriorated too badly. I dropped it off at his shop. Days later, Dave called to report that he had managed to find the right machine and the contents of the disk were intact and readable. He copied them onto a thumb drive. On it, I found a dozen Microsoft Word files related to the piece with one titled, promisingly, Poppy Draft 11.1 Copy. That had to be it. But there was a problem. The then-current version of Word couldn't open files from that distant era. Thankfully, Dave once again had the workaround. He pointed me to a free piece of software that I could download from the net called LibreOffice. Miraculously, LibreOffice was able to open the file, and there it was, a first draft complete with the recipe and trip report you've just heard, words I hadn't laid eyes on in 24 years. If there is a lesson to this part of the story, it is that the best way to save information for more than a handful of years is not digital technology, but acid-free paper. Opium Made Easy, as Harper's called the version it published, did not launch a nationwide fad for DIY opium production, as far as I could tell. I did hear anecdotally that sales of popover somniferum seeds were unusually robust the following year, though it took gardeners some effort to find them in the seed catalogs. Several companies had dropped the flower or changed the name that it was sold under after coming under pressure from the DEA. But whatever the DEA was thinking in 1996 and 97, the government missed the real story about opium, as in fact did I. While we were caught up in this remote and ridiculous skirmish in the drug war, the drug in question was quietly and legally making its way into the bodies of millions of Americans as Purdue Pharma pursued its marketing campaign, seeding the culture with seductive disinformation about the safety of OxyContin. There is a parable here somewhere about the difference between journalism and history. What might appear to be the story in the present moment may actually be a distraction from it, 
a shiny object preventing us from seeing the truth of what is really going on beneath the surface of our attention, what will most deeply affect people's lives in time. This also turns out to be a pretty good summary of the drug war, which, besides doing so much to erode our liberties and fill our prisons, served to distract us from reckoning the true toll of the opiates we happen to classify as legal. I doubt anyone has ever died of an overdose of illicit poppy tea. I mentioned earlier that you don't hear nearly as much about the drug war anymore. Efforts are afoot to undo some of its damage and decriminalize some of the plants it demonized. Though even the decriminalized nature movement, which seeks to exempt illicit plant medicines from prosecution, won't touch opium. Such is the stigma that the opioid crisis has stamped on that flower and its medicine. But though it is now widely recognized that the drug war has been a failure, to judge by the number of arrests for violations of the drug laws, it might as well be 1997. 1,247,713 arrests then, 1,239,909 arrests in 2019. If the drug war is over, the police and the DEA apparently haven't gotten the memo yet. As for the Sacklers and their criminal enterprise, at least some small portion of justice has been done. In 2020, the family agreed to a settlement with the Department of Justice, under which they pled guilty to criminal charges and agreed to pay $8.3 billion in penalties. Early in 2021, the Sacklers proposed an additional $4.275 billion to reimburse states, municipalities, and tribes for costs incurred by the epidemic and to compensate the families of their victims, the hundreds of thousands of people who have died by opioid overdose since the introduction of OxyContin in 1996. It is unfortunate that, thanks to the protections afforded by the bankruptcy laws and the ingenuity of lawyers and accountants, it could be years before any of them sees a dime. And Jim Hogshire? He managed to avoid jail time and got off with a fine, community service, and a year of probation. In the years since, he seems to have fallen on hard times, but whether this owes to his encounter with the drug war, I can't say. He doesn't appear to have published anything since the 1990s. The last mention of him in the press I could find was from 2014, when he was interviewed for an article about people who live in their cars on the streets of Seattle under threat of having their homes impounded for unpaid parking tickets. Jim and Heidi were living in a camper parked on the street. His battle now was not with the DEA, but with the meter maids. He told the reporter, This is the step you get before you're totally homeless. Caffeine. Maybe the very first sentence isn't the best place to admit this, at the very moment you are deciding whether to grant me an hour or two of your attention, but halfway through the research for this story, I suffered a crisis of confidence that caused me to doubt the subject was of any interest at all, even to me, whose supposedly bright idea it was. I began seriously to doubt a long piece on caffeine was worth the time and effort it would take to report and write it, and to wonder why I had ever thought otherwise. I was in trouble. We were in trouble. Though you have an option, I do not. You, at least, can stop listening right here. 
Before this crisis, I had been chugging merrily along, conducting interviews, reading countless books of science. It turns out caffeine is one of the most studied psychoactive compounds there is. And history, the course of which was shifted decisively in the West by the introduction of caffeine. Traveling to South America to visit a coffee finca, tasting all manner of caffeinated beverages, when suddenly, like Wiley e. Coyote in the Roadrunner cartoon, I chanced to glance down and realized there was no more road underfoot, just a vast, empty expanse of pointlessness as far as I could see. What in the world was I doing? Or perhaps it would be more accurate to ask... What was I not doing? Because something was going on with me just then that almost certainly accounts for this project's sudden loss of cabin pressure. I had stopped using caffeine. Abruptly and completely. After years of a tall morning coffee, followed by several cups of green tea throughout the day, and the occasional cappuccino after lunch, I had quit caffeine, cold turkey. It was not something that I particularly wanted to do, but I had come to the reluctant conclusion that the story demanded it. Several of the experts I was interviewing had suggested that I really couldn't understand the role of caffeine in my life, its invisible yet pervasive power, without getting off it and then, presumably, getting back on. Roland Griffiths, one of the world's leading researchers of mood-altering drugs, and the man most responsible for getting the diagnosis of caffeine withdrawal, included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM-5 for short, the Bible of Psychiatric Diagnoses, told me he hadn't begun to understand his own relationship to caffeine until he stopped using it and conducted a series of self-experiments. He urged me to do the same. The idea here is that you can't possibly describe the vehicle you're driving without first stopping, getting out, and taking a good look at the thing from the outside. This is probably the case with all psychoactive drugs, but is especially true of caffeine, since the particular quality of consciousness it sponsors in the regular user feels not so much altered or distorted as normal and transparent. Indeed, for most of us, to be caffeinated to one degree or another has simply become baseline human consciousness. Something like 90% of humans ingest caffeine regularly, making it the most widely used psychoactive drug in the world, and the only one we routinely give to children, commonly in the form of soda. Few of us even think of it as a drug, much less our daily use of it as an addiction. It's so pervasive that it's easy to overlook the fact that to be caffeinated is not baseline consciousness, but in fact is an altered state. It just happens to be a state that virtually all of us share rendering it invisible. So I decided that for the good of the peace, that is to say for you, dear listener, I would conduct a self-experiment in abstention. What had never occurred to me when I began this experiment is that by giving up caffeine, I would be undermining my ability to tell the story of caffeine, a knot I wasn't at all sure how to untie. Maybe I should have anticipated the problem. The scientists have spelled out, and I had duly noted, the predictable symptoms of caffeine withdrawal. Headache, fatigue, lethargy, difficulty concentrating, decreased motivation, irritability, intense distress, loss of confidence, and dysphoria, the polar opposite of euphoria. I had them all to one degree or another, but beneath the deceptively mild rubric of difficulty concentrating, hides nothing short of an existential threat to the work of the writer. 
How can you possibly expect to write anything when you can't concentrate? That's pretty much all writers do. Take the blooming multiplicity of the world and our experience of it, literally concentrate it down to manageable proportions, and then force it through the eye of a grammatical needle one word at a time. It's a miracle anyone ever manages this mental feat, or at least it seems that way on day three of caffeine withdrawal. But even before the writer can hope to confront and scale that sheer cliff of impossibility, he or she needs to muster the confidence, the sense of agency and power required to proceed. It hardly matters if it's a delusion, but that sense you have by the tale, a story the world needs to hear, and you alone have what it takes to tell it, is precisely what you need to tell it. Forgive the masculine metaphor, but much depends on this mental tumescence. What I discovered is that it, in turn, depends in no small part on 137-trimethylxanthine, the tiny organic molecule known to most of us as caffeine. The first day of my withdrawal, which began on April 10th, was by far the most trying, so much so that the prospect of writing or even just reading was immediately rendered futile. I had postponed the dark day as long as I could, concocting the kinds of excuses every addict does. Stressful week coming up, I would inform myself. Probably not the best time to go cold turkey. Of course, there was never a good time to do it. Always some reason I needed to be sharp and couldn't afford the flu-like symptoms the researchers said may be in store. I want to do right, as the country singer Gillian Welch crooned, but not right now. That was me, day after day. Procrastination at the beginning of any writing project is not unusual for me, but this went on for weeks. Eventually, however, I found myself cornered by the fact that there was no more reporting to be done and that all that stood between me and sitting down to write was quitting coffee, the very act that would render it impossible to write. I set a date and determined to stick to it. April 10th, a Wednesday morning, arrived. According to the researchers I'd interviewed, the process of withdrawal had actually begun overnight while I was sleeping, during the trough in the graph of caffeine's diurnal effects. The day's first cup of tea or coffee acquires most of its power, its joy, not so much from its euphoric and stimulating properties, than from the fact that it is suppressing the emerging symptoms of withdrawal. This is part of the insidiousness of caffeine. Its mode of action, or pharmacodynamics, mesh so perfectly with the rhythms of the human body so that the morning cup of coffee arrives just in time to head off the looming mental distress set in motion by yesterday's cup of coffee. Daily, caffeine proposes itself as the optimal solution to the problem caffeine creates. How brilliant! Judith and my morning ritual, after breakfast and exercise at home, involves a half-mile walk to coffee, as the real estate brokers now like to say. For some reason, we never make coffee at home. Instead, we buy a cup at the cheese board, a local bakery and cheese shop, and sip it from a cardboard container swaddled in a warm cardboard sleeve. Wasteful, I know. Hoping to fool myself, I made sure to keep everything about the morning ritual unchanged, the walk down the hill and the hot drink in a swaddled cardboard cup, except that when I reach the register, I force myself to ask for a mint tea instead of the usual large half-calf. Yes, I was a comparative piker in my caffeine consumption. After years of the usual, this raised the barista's eyebrow. I'm on the wagon, I explained apologetically. 
On this morning, that lovely dispersal of the mental fog that the first hit of caffeine ushers into consciousness never arrived. The fog settled over me and would not budge. It's not that I felt terrible, I never got a serious headache, but all day long I felt a certain muzziness, as if a veil had descended in the space between me and reality, a kind of filter that absorbs certain wavelengths of light and sound. I wrote in my notebook, Consciousness feels less transparent than usual, as if the air is slightly thicker and seems to be slowing everything down, including perception. I was able to do some work, but distractedly. I feel like an unsharpened pencil, I wrote. Things on the periphery intrude and won't be ignored. I can't focus for more than a minute. Is this what it's like to have ADD? By noon, I was mourning the passing of caffeine from my life for an undetermined period of time. I so missed what Judith calls her cup of optimism, the same cup that Alexander von Humboldt, the great German naturalist, called concentrated sunshine. Humboldt had a parrot named Jacob that could say only one thing, more coffee, more sugar. Though at this point, I would have settled for much less than optimism. What I miss, I wrote, is nothing resembling a state of intoxication or euphoria, just the simple gift of my normal everyday consciousness. Is this my new baseline? God, I hope not. Over the course of the next few days, I definitely began to feel better. The veil lifted. Yet I was still not quite myself, and neither quite was the world. By the end of the week, I had gotten to the point where I didn't think I could fairly blame caffeine withdrawal for my mental state and disappointing output. And yet in this new normal, the world seemed duller to me. I seemed duller too. Mornings were the worst. I came to see how integral caffeine is to the daily work of knitting ourselves back together after the fraying of consciousness during sleep. That reconsolidation of self, the daily sharpening of the mental pencil, took much longer than usual and never quite felt complete. I began to think of caffeine as an essential ingredient for the construction of an ego. Mine was now deficient in that nutrient, which perhaps explains why the whole idea of writing this piece, indeed of ever writing anything ever again, had come to seem insurmountable. I've been talking here about a chemical, caffeine, but of course we're really talking about a plant, or in this case two plants, Coffea and Camellia sinensis, a.k.a. tea, which over the course of their evolution figured out how to produce a chemical that happens to addict most of the human species. This is an astounding accomplishment, and while that was not the plant's intent in concocting this molecule— there is no intent in evolution, just lots of blind chance that occasionally yields an adaptation so good that it is extravagantly rewarded. Once that molecule found its way into the human brain, the destinies of those plant species and this animal species changed in momentous ways. The adaptation proved so ingenious that it allowed the plants to wildly expand their numbers and habitats. In the case of coffea, whose range had previously been limited to a few corners of East Africa and Southern Arabia, its appeal to our species allowed it to circumnavigate the planet, colonizing a broad band of territory, mainly in the tropical highlands, that reaches from Africa to East Asia, Hawaii, Central and South America, and now covers more than 27 million acres. The path of Camellia sinensis has taken the plant from its origins in southwest China, 
near present-day Myanmar and Tibet, as far west as India and east to Japan, colonizing more than 10 million acres. These are two of the world's most successful plants, right up there with the edible grasses, rice, wheat, and corn. Yet compared to those species, which won our support by so admirably supplying our need for calories, tea and coffee's ticket to world domination involves something much more subtle and superfluous, their ability to change our consciousness in desirable and useful ways. And unlike the edible grasses, the fat seeds of which we consume with virtually every meal, all we want from the tea and coffee plants are the molecules of caffeine and some characteristic flavors we extract from their leaves and seeds, respectively. So all we do with them is trivially lighten the weight of their vast biomass before simply dumping it all in landfills. Tons of these most valuable of all agricultural commodities are shipped from the tropics to the higher latitudes, there to be briefly soaked in hot water and then thoughtlessly discarded. Isn't there something ecologically absurd about moving all these leaves and seeds around the world merely to inflect water? Coffee and tea had their own reasons for producing the caffeine molecule, and as is often the case for the so-called secondary metabolites produced by plants, this is for defense against predators. At high doses, caffeine is lethal to insects. Its bitter flavor may also discourage them from chewing on the plants. Caffeine also appears to have herbicidal properties and may inhibit the germination of competing plants that attempt to grow in the zone where seedlings have taken root or later drop their leaves. Many of the psychoactive molecules plants produce are toxic, but as Paracelsus famously said, the dose makes the poison. What kills at one dose may do something more subtle and interesting at another. The interesting question is why so many of the defense chemicals produced by plants are psychoactive in animals at less than lethal doses. One theory holds that the plant doesn't necessarily want to kill its predator, only disarm it. As the long history of the plant defense chemical versus insect arms race demonstrates, killing your predator outright isn't necessarily the best move since it selects for resistance, rendering the toxin harmless. Whereas if you succeed in merely discombobulating your enemy, distracting him from his dinner, say, or ruining his appetite, as many psychoactive compounds will do, you might be better off, since you will save yourself while preserving the power of your defense toxin. Caffeine does, in fact, shrink the appetite and discombobulate insect brains. In a famous experiment conducted by NASA in the 1990s, researchers fed a variety of psychoactive substances to spiders to see how they would affect their web-making skills. The caffeinated spiders spun a strangely cubist and utterly ineffective web with oblique angles, openings big enough to let small birds through, and completely lacking in symmetry or a center. The web was far more fanciful than the one spun by spiders given cannabis or LSD. Intoxicated insects are also, like intoxicated humans, more likely to do reckless things, thereby attracting the attention of birds and other predators that will happily do the plant's bidding by snatching and destroying the helplessly dancing or stumbling bug. Most of the various plant chemicals or alkaloids that people have used to alter the textures of consciousness are chemicals originally selected for defense. Yet even in the insect world, the dose makes the poison. And if the dose is low enough, 
a chemical made for defense can serve a very different purpose, to attract and secure the enduring loyalty of pollinators. This appears to be what's going on between bees and certain caffeine-producing plants in a symbiotic relationship that may have something important to tell us about our own relationship to caffeine. The story begins in the 1990s, when German researchers made the surprising discovery that several classes of plants, including not only coffee and tea, but also the citrus family and a handful of other genera, produce caffeine in their nectar, a substance that evolved to attract rather than repel insects. Was this an accident, a leaking of caffeine from other parts of the plant, or could it be a slightly diabolical adaptation? When Geraldine Wright stumbled on the German paper, she was a young lecturer, a botanist turned entomologist at Newcastle University in England. We had no idea why caffeine was in the nectar, Wright told me. So in 2013, Wright, who now teaches in the zoology department at the University of Oxford, conducted a simple, inexpensive experiment to find out. She trapped a bunch of honeybees and immobilized them in little bee straitjackets, arranging them in a grid of bee-sized, roofless apartments with only their heads poking out on top. Using a medicine dropper, Wright fed her bees various mixtures of sugar water with and without different concentrations of caffeine. Each time she offered a bee a drop of pseudo-nectar, she gave it a little puff of a scent. The idea was to see how quickly the bees learned to associate that scent with a desirable food source. Really simple, low-tech, no funding, she said, describing the rudimentary setup. Okay, but how do you determine a bee's food preferences? That's simple too, Wright said. They extend their mouth parts and proboscis if they want something. Wright discovered that her bees were more likely to remember the odor associated with the caffeinated nectar over the odor associated with sucrose only. Her results appeared in an article published in Science in 2013 called Caffeine in Floral Nectar Enhances a Pollinator's Memory of Reward. Even at concentrations too small for the bees to taste, the presence of caffeine helped them to quickly learn and recall a particular scent and to favor it. You can see why this would be valuable to a flower. It would cause the pollinator to remember that flower and return to it more avidly. Or, as the entomologist put it in the paper, caffeinated nectar increases pollinator fidelity, otherwise known as floral constancy. Drug your pollinator with a low dose of caffeine, and she will remember you and come back for more, choosing you over other plants that don't offer the same buzz. Actually, we don't know whether the bees feel anything when they ingest caffeine, only that the chemical helps them to remember, which, as we will see, caffeine appears to do for us, too. Subsequent experiments with bigger budgets and more elaborate setups, involving fake flowers in more naturalistic settings, have replicated Wright's discovery. Bees will remember and return more reliably to flowers that offer them caffeinated nectar. What's more, the power of this effect is so great that bees will continue to return to those flowers even when there is no nectar left. An experiment conducted by Margaret J. Cuvion and published in 2015 in Current Biology under the title Caffeinated Forage Tricks Honeybees into Increasing Foraging and Recruitment Behaviors raised the qui bono question, who benefits more from this coevolutionary arrangement between pollinators and caffeine-producing plants? The answer would appear to be the plant. 
Cuvillon demonstrated that the memory and enthusiasm of the bees for caffeinated flowers was such that it increased, quote, foraging frequency, waggle dancing probability and frequency, and persistency and specificity to the forage location, resulting in a quadrupling of colony-level recruitment, end quote. That is, she estimated that four times as many bees would pay visits to the caffeinated flowers than to flowers offering nectar only. Yet the bee's exuberance exceeds any conceivable benefit to them, making it irrational. She writes, quote, Caffeine causes bees to overestimate forage quality, tempting the colony into suboptimal foraging strategies, end quote, likely to reduce honey storage, since they kept returning to the caffeinated flowers long after they'd been depleted of nectar. She concluded that this makes, quote, the relationship between pollinator and plant less mutualistic and more exploitative, end quote. The plant's offer of caffeine to the bees is, quote, akin to drugging, where the pollinator's perception of the forage quality is altered, which in turn changes its individual behaviors, end quote. It's an eerily familiar story. A credulous animal duped by a plant's clever neurochemistry into acting against its interests. An uncomfortable series of questions arises. Could we humans be in the same boat as those hapless bees? Have we too been duped by caffeinated plants, not only to do their bidding, but to act against our own interests in the process? Who's getting the best of our relationship with the caffeine-producing plants? There are a few different ways to attack this question, but a good one is to attempt to answer two further questions. Has the discovery of caffeine by humans been a boon or a bane to our civilization? And what about to our species, which might not be quite the same thing? In the case of caffeine, we can look to recorded history for answers, since humanity's acquaintance with caffeine is surprisingly recent. Hard as it is to imagine, Western civilization was innocent of coffee or tea until the 1600s. As it happened, coffee, tea, and chocolate, which also contains caffeine, arrived in England during the same decade, the 1650s, so we can gain some idea of the world before caffeine and after. Coffee was known in East Africa for a few centuries before that. It's believed to have been discovered in Ethiopia around A.D. 850, but it does not have the antiquity of other psychoactive substances, such as alcohol or cannabis or even some of the psychedelics like psilocybin or ayahuasca or peyote, which have played a role in human culture for millennia. Tea is also older than coffee, having been discovered in China and used as a medicine since at least 1000 BC, though tea wasn't popularized as a recreational beverage until the Tang Dynasty between AD 618 and 907. It is hardly an exaggeration to say that the arrival of caffeine in Europe changed everything. That sounds hyperbolic, I know, and we often hear something similar about other developments in material culture, how the discovery of X or Y, a new world commodity, say, or some invention or discovery, made the modern world. This usually means that the advent of X or Y had a transformative effect on economics or everyday life or the standard of living. But like the caffeine molecule itself, which rapidly reaches virtually every cell of the body that ingests it, the changes wrought by coffee and tea occurred at a more fundamental level, at the level of the human mind. 
Coffee and tea ushered in a shift in the mental weather, sharpening minds that had been fogged by alcohol, freeing people from the natural rhythms of the body and the sun, thus making possible whole new kinds of work and arguably new kinds of thought, too. Having brought what amounted to a new form of consciousness to Europe, caffeine went on to influence everything from global trade to imperialism, the slave trade, the workplace, the sciences, politics, social relations, arguably even the rhythms of English prose. The story goes that human engagement with the coffee plant begins with an observant goat herder in present-day Ethiopia, one of a handful of places in Africa where the shrubby tree grows wild. According to the story, a 9th-century herder by the name of Caldi noticed how his goats would behave erratically and remain awake all night after eating the red berries of the coffea arabica plant. Caldi shared his observation with the abbot of a local monastery, who concocted a drink with the berries and discovered the stimulating properties of coffee. Perhaps. But we do know that by the 15th century, coffee was being cultivated in East Africa and traded across the Arabian Peninsula. Initially, the new drink was regarded as an aid to concentration and used by Sufis in Yemen to keep them from dozing off during their religious observances. Tea, too, started out as a kind of spiritual no-doze for Buddhist monks striving to stay awake through long stretches of meditation. Within a century, coffee houses had sprung up in cities across the Arab world. In 1570, there were more than 600 of them in Constantinople alone, and they spread north and west with the Ottoman Empire. These new public spaces were hotbeds of news and gossip, as well as places to gather for performances and games. Coffee houses were comparatively liberal institutions where the conversation often turned to politics, and at various times, governmental and clerical powers that be attempted to close them down, but never for long or with much success. A vat of coffee was put on trial in Mecca in 1511 for its dangerously intoxicating effects. However, its conviction and subsequent banishment was quickly overturned by the Sultan of Cairo. As coffee's defenders rightly pointed out, the beverage is nowhere mentioned in the Quran. Coffee thus offered the Islamic world a suitable alternative to alcohol, which is specifically prescribed in the Quran, and it came to be known as kave, which, loosely translated, means wine of Araby. This notion that coffee somehow exists in opposition to alcohol would persist in both the East and the West, and comes down to us today in the common but erroneous belief that black coffee is an antidote for drunkenness. The Islamic world at this time was in many respects more advanced than Europe in science and technology and in learning. Whether this mental flourishing had anything to do with the prevalence of coffee and prohibition of alcohol is difficult to prove, but as the German historian Wolfgang Schivelbusch has argued, the beverage, quote, seemed to be tailor-made for a culture that forbade alcohol consumption and gave birth to modern mathematics, end quote. In China, the popularity of tea during the Tang Dynasty also coincided with the Golden Age. And the far-reaching impact of caffeine's arrival in Europe gives the idea of a causal link some plausibility. Europeans had long been fascinated by the exotic practices of the Orient, and the drinking of this inky hot beverage soon sparked their curiosity. A Venetian traveler to Constantinople in 1585 noted that the locals, quote, are in the habit of drinking in public in shops and in the streets a black liquid 
boiling as they can stand it, which is extracted from a seed they call cave, and is said to have the property of keeping a man awake, end quote. The notion of drinking any beverage piping hot was itself exotic, and in fact this proved to be one of the most important gifts of both coffee and tea to humanity. The fact that you needed to boil water to make them meant that they were the safest things a person could drink. Before that, it had been alcohol, which was more sanitary than water, but not as safe as tea or coffee. The tannins in all these beverages also have antimicrobial properties. The contribution of coffee and tea to public health may help explain why societies that embraced the new hot drinks tended to thrive as microbial diseases declined. In 1629, the first coffee houses in Europe, styled on the Arab model, popped up in Venice, and the first such establishment in England was opened in Oxford in 1650 by a Jewish immigrant known as Jacob the Jew. They arrived in London shortly thereafter and proliferated virally. Within a few decades, there were thousands of coffee houses in London. At their peak, one for every 200 Londoners. We think of England as a tea culture, but it was coffee that flourished there first. It wasn't until the 18th century that tea consumption surpassed that of coffee. As in the Islamic world, in Europe, coffee was mainly consumed in public coffee houses, vibrant meeting places where the news of the day, political, financial, and cultural, was as much the draw as the coffee. Coffee houses became uniquely democratic public spaces. In England, they were the only such spaces where men of different classes could mix. Anyone could sit anywhere. But only men, at least in England, a fact that led one wag to warn that the popularity of coffee, quote, put the whole race in danger of extinction, end quote. Women were welcome in French coffee houses. Compared to taverns, coffee houses were also notably civil places, where if you started an argument, you were expected to buy a round for everyone. To call the English coffeehouse a new kind of public space doesn't quite do it justice. It represented a new kind of communications medium, one that just happened to be made of brick and mortar rather than electricity and wires. You paid a penny for the coffee, but the information, in the form of newspapers, books, magazines, and conversation, was free. Coffee houses were often referred to as penny universities. After visiting London coffee houses, a French writer named Maximilien Misson wrote, Quote, you have all manner of news there. You have a good fire, which you may sit by as long as you please. You have a dish of coffee. You meet your friends for the transaction of business, and all for a penny if you don't care to spend more. End quote. London's coffee houses were distinguished one from another by the professional or intellectual interests of their patrons, which eventually gave them specific institutional identities. So, for example, merchants and men with interests in shipping gathered at Lloyd's Coffee House. Here you could learn what ships were arriving and departing and buy an insurance policy on your cargo. Lloyd's Coffee House eventually became the insurance brokerage Lloyd's of London. Similarly, the London Stock Exchange had its roots in the trades conducted at Jonathan's Coffee House. Learned types and scientists, known then as natural philosophers, gathered at the Grecian, which became closely associated with the Royal Society. Isaac Newton and Edmund Halley debated physics and mathematics here and supposedly once dissected a dolphin on the premises. 
Tom Standage, author of A History of the World in Six Glasses, three of which happen to contain caffeine, coffee, tea, and cola, writes that coffee houses, quote, provided an entirely new environment for social, intellectual, commercial, and political exchange, end quote, making those in London what he calls the crucibles of the scientific and financial revolutions that shaped the modern world. Meanwhile, the literary set gathered at Wills and at Buttons in Covent Garden, where you might bump into John Dryden or Alexander Pope. Pope's The Rape of the Lock is steeped in the culture and particularly the gossip of the coffeehouse, and in Canto Three, pays homage to the power of the brew, which makes the politician wise. It also supplied an important plot point. It was coffee that, quote, sent up in vapors to the baron's brain, new stratagems the radiant lock to gain, end quote. Some critics maintain that the culture of the coffeehouse altered English prose in enduring ways. Habitués like Henry Fielding, Jonathan Swift, Daniel Defoe, and Lawrence Stern brought the rhythms of spoken English into their prose, marking a radical turn from the formality of previous English prose stylists. Specialized though they were by field of interest, London's coffeehouses were also linked by patrons who spent the day moving from one to another, carrying news but also rumors and gossip which spread more quickly through London's network of coffeehouses than by any other medium. One of England's earliest magazines, The Tatler, began its life in the Grecian in 1709 and was itself an attempt to translate the sheer variety of London's coffeehouse culture to the page. The magazine was divided into sections, each covering a different subject and named for the coffeehouse associated with that particular interest. As Richard Steele, the Tatler's editor, explained at an early issue, quote, All accounts of gallantry, pleasure, and entertainment shall be under the article of White's Chocolate House, poetry under that of Will's Coffee House, learning under the title of Grecian, foreign and domestic news you will have from St. James Coffee House, end quote. Not everyone in 17th century England approved of coffee or of the coffee house. Medical men debated the beverage's healthfulness in fevered tracts, and women strenuously objected to the amount of time men were spending in coffee houses. In a pamphlet titled The Women's Petition Against Coffee, published in 1674, the authors suggested that the enfeebling liquor robbed men of their sexual energies, making them, quote, as unfruitful as those deserts whence that unhappy berry is said to be brought, end quote. The unsubtle subtitle of the pamphlet, Humble Petition and Address of Several Thousands of Buxom Good Women Languishing in Extremity of Want, did not mince words. Men were spending so much time in coffee houses and drinking so much coffee that they arrived home with, quote, nothing stiff but their joints, end quote. The men replied with their own pamphlet, claiming that the, quote, harmless and healing liquor makes the erection more vigorous, the ejaculation more full, and adds a spiritual essency to the sperm, end quote. Any problem in this department, the pamphleteers wrote off to the, quote, husband's natural infirmity, end quote, or possibly, quote, your own perpetual pumping him, not drinking coffee, end quote. The 17th century war of the sexes over coffee led to the association of tea with femininity and domesticity that endures to this day in the West. 
A Londoner could get a cup of tea in the coffee house, but tea didn't have its own dedicated public venue until 1717, when Thomas Twining opened a tea house next door to Tom's, his coffee house in the Strand. Here, women were welcome to sample the various offerings and buy tea leaves to brew at home. Thanks in part to Twining's innovation, what was soon to become the more popular caffeinated beverage in Great Britain came under the control of upper- and middle-class women, who proceeded to develop a rich culture of tea parties, high teas and low, and a whole regime of tea accessories, including china and porcelain, the teaspoon and the tea cozy, and finger foods expressly designed to accompany tea. The temperance movement, led by women and promoting tea as an alternative to gin, would later solidify tea's feminine image in the West. Women's were not the only voices raised against coffee drinking. The conversation in London's coffee houses frequently turned to politics in vigorous exercises of free speech that drew the ire of the government, especially after the monarchy was restored in 1660. Charles II, worried that plots were being hatched in coffee houses, decided that the places were dangerous fomenters of rebellion that the crown needed to suppress. In 1675, the king moved to close down the coffee houses on the grounds that the, quote, false, malicious, and scandalous reports, end quote, emanating therefrom were a, quote, disturbance of the quiet and peace of the realm, end quote. Like so many other compounds that change the qualities of consciousness in individuals, caffeine was regarded as a threat to institutional power which moved to suppress it, in a foreshadowing of the wars against drugs to come. But the king's war against coffee lasted only 11 days. Charles discovered that it was too late to turn back the tide of caffeine. By then, the coffee houses were such a fixture of English culture and daily life, and so many eminent Londoners had become addicted to caffeine, that everyone simply ignored the king's order and blithely went on drinking coffee. Afraid to test his authority and find it lacking, the king quietly backed down, issuing a second proclamation rolling back the first, quote, out of princely consideration and royal compassion. End quote. In France, too, coffee houses became synonymous with sedition and would play a decisive role in the events of 1789. Jules Michelet wrote that those, quote, who assembled day after day in the Café de Procope saw, with a penetrating glance in the depths of their black drink, the illumination of the year of the revolution, end quote. Perhaps for this reason, Paris's coffee houses were rife with intrigue. The mob that ultimately stormed the Bastille, assembled in the Café de Foy, roused to action by the eloquence of political journalist Camille Desmoulins, and intoxicated not by alcohol, but by caffeine. It's hard to imagine that the sort of political, cultural, and intellectual ferment that bubbled up in the coffee houses of both France and England would ever have developed in a tavern. If alcohol fuels our Dionysian tendencies, caffeine nurtures the Apollonian. Early on, people recognized the link between the rising tide of rationalism and the fashionable new beverage. Michelet wrote that henceforth is the tavern dethroned, surely overstating the case. Wine and beer did not go away, yet the European mind had been pried loose from alcohol's grip, freeing it for the new kinds of thinking that caffeine helped to foster. You can argue what came first, but the kind of magical thinking that alcohol sponsored in the medieval mind began in the 17th century to yield to a new spirit of rationalism and, a bit later, enlightenment thinking.
Continues Michelet, quote, coffee, the sober drink, the mighty nourishment of the brain, which unlike other spirits, heightens purity and lucidity. Coffee, which clears the clouds of the imagination and their gloomy weight, which illumines the reality of things suddenly with the flash of truth, end quote. To see lucidly the reality of things, this was in a nutshell the rationalist project. Coffee became, along with the microscope, telescope, and the pen, one of its indispensable tools. But unlike the others, this was a tool that was taken up in the brain and mind. Wolfgang Schivelbusch writes in his wonderful History of Stimulants and Intoxicants, Tastes of Paradise, that, quote, With coffee, the principle of rationality entered human physiology, transforming it to conform with its own requirements, end quote. The enthusiasm for coffee among intellectuals in both England and France reflected, perhaps, its novelty as much as its power. New drugs always seem miraculous, and for that reason are often credited with astounding properties and consumed to excess. Voltaire was a fervent advocate for coffee and supposedly drank as many as 72 cups a day. Coffee and coffee houses fueled heroic labors in Enlightenment writers. Denis Diderot compiled his magnum opus while imbibing caffeine at the Café de Procope. It's safe to say the encyclopedia would never have gotten finished in a tavern. Honoré de Balzac was convinced his vast literary output, as well as the operations of his imagination, depended on heroic doses of coffee, consumed through the night as he chronicled the human comedy in his innumerable novels. Eventually, he developed such a tolerance for caffeine that he dispensed altogether with the diluting effects of water, developing his own unique method of administering the drug dry. Quote, I have discovered a horrible, rather brutal method that I recommend only to men of excessive vigor. It is a question of using finely pulverized, dense coffee, cold and anhydrous, consumed on an empty stomach. This coffee falls into your stomach, a sack whose velvety interior is lined with tapestries of suckers and papillae. The coffee finds nothing else in the sack, and so it attacks these delicate and voluptuous linings. Sparks shoot all the way up to the brain. The effect for Balzac was to transform the brain into a pitched mental battleground where the epic forces of his imagination could contend. Quote, from that moment on, everything becomes agitated. Ideas quick march into motion like battalions of a grand army to its legendary fighting ground, and the battle rages. Memories charge in, bright flags on high. The cavalry of metaphor deploys with a magnificent gallop. The artillery of logic rushes up with clattering wagons and cartridges. On imagination's orders, sharpshooters sight and fire. Forms and shapes and characters rear up. The paper is spread with ink. End quote. Perhaps not surprisingly, it was Balzac who wrote one of the all-time best descriptions of how it feels to be over-caffeinated, a state that he said, quote, produces a kind of animation that looks like anger. One's voice rises, one's gestures suggest unhealthy impatience, one wants everything to proceed with the speed of ideas, one becomes brusque, ill-tempered about nothing, one assumes that everyone else is equally lucid. A man of spirit must therefore avoid going out in public, end quote. It is one thing to live in a shared culture of caffeine in which everyone's mind is running at more or less the same accelerated pace. 
but it's quite another to find yourself so sped up mentally that other people appear to you like motionless figures on a train platform as you blur by them in caffeinated clouds of impatience. Balzac's account of caffeine intoxication hit home as I approached the third month of my abstention. I felt very much like that stationary figure on the platform, catching envious glimpses of coffee drinkers through the train window as they streaked by. After a few weeks, the mental impairments of withdrawal had subsided, and I could once again think in a straight line, hold an abstraction in my head for more than two minutes, and shut peripheral thoughts out of my field of attention. My confidence in telling this story gradually returned, and after a month I could write again. You can judge how well that's going, but at least it's going. Yet I continue to feel as though I'm mentally just slightly behind the curve, especially when in the company of drinkers of coffee and tea, which of course is all the time and everywhere. In college, I dated a woman who had grown up without a television in her home. She missed so many references, jokes, and allusions that she sometimes seemed vaguely foreign to us and we to her. There was this subtle but unmistakable mental hitch. These days, it feels a little like that. Here's what I'm missing. I miss the way caffeine and its rituals used to order my day, especially in the morning. Herbal teas, which are barely, if at all, psychoactive, lack coffee and tea's power to organize the day into a rhythm of energetic peaks and valleys as the mental tide of caffeine ebbs and flows. The morning surge is a blessing, obviously, but there is also something comforting in the ebb tide of afternoon, which a cup of tea can gently reverse. I miss the enveloping aroma and sounds of coffee, whether it's the mechanical scream of beans being ground or the more contented burbling of the coffee as it percolates. Actually, those sensory gifts are still available to me every time I walk past a cafe, but it turns out the smells and sounds by themselves are merely a taunt if not followed by consummation. Lately, I've taken to brewing coffee for Judith at home, grinding the smoky, woodsy aromas out of the beans and inhaling the steam off her cup before I hand it to her, hoping to imbibe some hint of mental stimulant before I head off to my desk to sip my chamomile tea. What work of genius has ever been composed on chamomile? What mental breakthrough has ever been credited to mint tea? It's a miracle I've gotten this far with our story. I miss being able to take part in coffee culture, idling in cafes and taking in the scene. Even as the mind accelerates, the body slows and is perfectly content to while away the time. Curiously, that culture no longer revolves around conversation, which has all but dried up in the modern coffee house. It's been replaced by the mental industry of coffee drinkers tapping away on their laptops with a sense of urgency I can't even pretend to possess. So many important projects. Sure, I can sit there among them with my tisane, but it's not the same. I no longer swim in the same caffeine sea as everyone else. Beached, I can still see the water, but it's way over there. There are some compensatory benefits. I'm sleeping like a teenager again and wake feeling actually refreshed. There's an explanation for this I will get to. I've discovered an odd and unexpected social benefit as well. When I turn down offers of coffee and explain my experiment in abstention, I find that people are keenly interested and, oddly, sort of impressed. It's as though I've notched some kind of achievement. I could never do that, a friend will say, or I should really try that. I know it would help me sleep. 
but I can't imagine getting through the morning. Naturally, these reactions make me feel as though I've actually accomplished something worthy of admiration. I suspect I'm benefiting from the echoes of Puritanism still reverberating in our culture, which even now awards points for self-discipline and overcoming desire. Addiction, even to a relatively harmless and easily procured drug like caffeine, is seen as evidence of weakness of character. A sleep researcher and caffeine abstainer I interviewed told me, quote, I realized my life was being controlled by caffeine. Traveling, I'd find myself in an unfamiliar city and could not turn in for bed until I had scoped out where I was going to get my fix in the morning. I liked to feel in control and realized I wasn't. Caffeine was controlling me, end quote. Roland Griffiths, the drug researcher, told me that he had been inspired to study caffeine after embarrassing himself with his own revolting behavior. In a hurry and in need of a caffeine fix, he had thrown some frozen coffee grinds into a cup, added hot tap water, swished it around, and downed it. Quote, I recognize drug-seeking behavior when I see it, end quote. Yet he agreed that there's nothing inherently wrong with an addiction if you have a secure supply, no known health risk, and you're not offended by the idea. But many of us can't help moralizing addiction. I will confess to indulging in the occasional pang of righteousness. Ordinarily, a walk through the airport during my months of abstention filled me with yearning and envy as I rolled past one aromatic caffeine opportunity after another. But matters look very different to a reformed addict first thing in the morning. One such morning, having hauled myself out of bed and to the airport for a 6 a.m. flight, fueled on nothing but peppermint tea, I registered only pity as I beheld the lines snaking in front of the Starbucks and Pete's, lines so long it would take easily a half hour for these poor wretches to get served. I could see that they were enduring the first symptoms of caffeine withdrawal, and their desperation to head them off and return to baseline consciousness carried a whiff of pathos. They looked like better-dressed versions of the addicts I had seen in Amsterdam, lining up in front of a mobile dispensary for their morning fix. I thought to myself, these people are pathetic. This is not a thought I am proud of. In fact, I look forward to rejoining the ranks of the caffeine-dependent as soon as I can, 